0: Welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through a song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I'm your host, Jeff, better known as B.B. Fish.
1: And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin.
0: And welcome to the 79th episode of the Nauticast titled, True Steel, an analysis of a Clash of Kings, John 1 and 2, in which Jon Snow meets up with good friends, gets challenged by his mentors, and readers are introduced to a High reborn, Dolorous
1: Ed. And we're very excited to announce our special guest for this episode. You may know him from his uh, terrific YouTube channel, including Killing a Ranger, part one and two, which is going to be very relevant uh, to the chapters under discussion today. You may know him from his writings over at Watch Run the Wall or his uh, podcast Maester Monthly. Please welcome Matt, a.k.a. Joe the Magician. Hi, guys.
2: I'm, I'm finally <laughs> here. I did it. I made it to Nauticast. This, this is making it. Dude, this is making it for you, This man. is we're, making it. I think it's last. one. Wait, no, I've appeared on this before at that... Um, at the, oh, Fire, right. Fire yeah. the Fire and Blood event We got into an argument Our about Our
1: finest hour
2: That was great Guys were an fun. argument live on stream About Stannis and Renly It was great <laughs>
0: <laughs> No it was actually about um, It was about something else right It was about uh, The Dance the Dragons I was arguing right? about
1: Stannis oh. I don't know what you were arguing about <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if anyone Was arguing back successfully True that But you sure were, but yeah, we've been waiting—not waiting—we've been just, uh, you know, looking forward forever to having you on the regular cast. And uh, we knew, especially, we had to have you on for for John because you've written so well about John and his relationship to Maester Aemon, and kind of all the the different archetypes and ideas George is playing with in that storyline. And so, as soon as we got to John and Clash, we knew we had to have you. And just.
2: For everyone else, I was just fist-pumping during Season 8 when John remembered Maester Aemon. and I was like, yes! It's all, <laughs> it's all course, true. All of it. Your fave. Yeah, it worked out. <laughs> no one expected the aim and cameo in Season 8, but I got it.
0: <laughs> That's good. It's, it's good that we actually got that Actually, in Season 8, for absolutely, positively sure. So... <laughs> Thank you again, Matt, for coming on. It's going to be a lot of fun doing this episode. Uh, as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman, Zach, Grand Master Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and War of the Waves, Sir Keith J, Master of Whisperers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jency O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord Jean, Master of Coin, Mr. June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Warren of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragon Scone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Baby the Onion Baby, Lord Blackheart the Defiant, Master of Zorse, Lord Micah, Warren of the West and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym that was promised, the Hybrid priest, the blue ringed Octoling, Lord Jake Assistant to the Hand of the King, Lady Zena Valerian, Hedrical, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, His Grace's High Inquisitor Frank B, Lord James Stormboard, War of the Worldwide Werewood, Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorm, Richard, Seedler Bravos, Kelly, War of the East, and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, and our two newest members of the Small Council. You heard that right. Two newest members of the Small Council Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, and the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden. Thank you, councillors, very much.
1: Thank you to all our counselors, especially our two new ones. We keep having to buy a bigger and bigger council table, it's just going to run us entirely out of money.
0: It <laughs> really really well so yeah and, and thank you guys so much i mean yeah yeah someone said today on the on the slack that we're gonna have by the time we're done this we'll have enough counselors to uh, we'll have more words more count more more small counselors and then there will be words to the winner and i absolutely hope that is the case for absolutely sure all right spoiler to talk about in all episodes we'll potentially be talking about all published books that is the five novels three duncan egg novels histories interviews the windsor sample chapters as well as game of thrones the tv show anything and everything
1: our question this week comes from Lady Pearl of Detroit, A Sworn Sword. She wrote us a long, fantastic message, but for length purposes, we'll only read the too long didn't read. She hopefully included it at the end. Considering the speed at which the free folk are gathering and harrying the watch to be able to cross the wall to get away from the others, can anyone give insight into why the others' advance is taking so long, considering both the current three-year timeline and how George could have made it work if he kept the five-year gap? Yeah, that's a really interesting question that touches on a number of aspects of the series, what the others' ultimate purpose is, how long they've been active, and the more kind of military strategic considerations that you don't always apply to an eldritch evil, but I think that, <laughs> that question needs to be asked here because... You know, they they strike at waymore roy's. They strike at the the fist of the first men. They may have something to do with Benjamin's disappearance, but they're also not going all in on Mance until his people try to attack the wall. So it's definitely a a mystery worth worth discussing. So what do you think about that, Jeff?
0: It feels to me that the others are kind of hurting the the free folk into like a, like against the wall, so to speak. In in a way, I, I wonder if there's a something, some sort of intelligence again at work. Like we've talked before about the others don't have any culture, according to Elio Garcia Jr., who had talked to George R. Martin about this, but they do have some sort of intelligence. So I do wonder if that's kind of the thing that they're trying to lessen the number, the numbers that they're going to potentially have to face in Westeros. Possibly their memories of the Long Night are also exist. I think, Matt, you've written a lot about mm-hmm. that, about how... Um, the others seemingly have a memory of what happened in the in the long night in the years before. And that memory is going to have an impact on them and how they're going to deal with that. I, I do think it's it's interesting, right, that like what would have happened if there had been a five year gap in the story. Like for me, it doesn't make a lot of sense that the others would just be kind of just milling about for five, you know, years waiting for the plot to catch up with itself. Waiting for the kids to age up, I guess, is that's the reason why George had that uh that plot line in the in the at the first place but I do think it's 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 weird
1: yeah I mean the others are kind of a waiting around now even without the five year gap you still do have to answer the question of why they're not currently attacking the wall that is kind of an open question from the first chapter in the series forward is it possible that they're Waiting for a proper opponent. Like, I mean, one of the great ironies of Stannis showing up at the wall, like, sword blazing and ready to, to save the day is that the others look at him and go, no. <laughs> <laughs> we Wrong weren't guy. waiting for, we weren't waiting for you. Who are you? What are <laughs> you doing here? So is it possible that they, they sense, uh, like, you know, that there needs to be uh, someone like Jon Snow or that they're waiting because they have these memories of the long night, they're waiting for another figure like that to confront before they come to the wall? Or is it something to do with Bran? What do you think, Matt?
2: Um, I think, well, the biggest reason, and it's pretty big, is just the wall's still there. Like, they seemingly cannot go past it, and they've been cooling their heels between five to 10,000 years behind it. If they could knock it down before, you think they would. So they may be waiting for someone to essentially break their cage, <laughs> which is kind mm-hmm. of what the wall is in a way. Um And, you know, they've been chilling for at least active. Like, we don't know when they, like, went from being mists to being, like, beings again. Who knows when that was? But it's definitely in Craster's lifetime. So they've been waiting several decades at the very least. I don't think what another five years would mean to them, especially when they're so long-lived and they're basically immortal. I just think they're waiting for the wall to come down and they just don't really know how to do it. Or the show has it with they steal a dragon, they use that to (laughs) knock down the wall. It may be something along those lines where it's a magical thing they don't have. Hmm.
1: There's something they, you know, a weapon they need or something... Analogous to the Horn of Jorman, if not the Horn of Jorman itself. I think the most telling incident for me in this regard is that they do go all in on attacking Tormund's people mm. once the once the attack on the wall fails, which suggests, as many people have mentioned before, that they left Mance alone for the most part because they thought he'd be useful in getting rid of the Night's Watch or maybe destroying the wall himself and that they wouldn't have to do it. And once his attack failed, then the Wildings kind of outlived their usefulness, so they descended on, on Tormund's band. But yeah... They they do seem to need something, and one thing I'm interested in, especially in regards to my boy Euron, is whether they're actively trying to influence anything south of the wall. Do they have any agents south of the wall? Can they enter anyone's mind south of the wall? Can, I mean, obviously they can't physically pass. Can any part of their magic? And that uh, that's gonna that's an open question I'd, I'd like to learn more about.
2: Othor and Jaffer went through and were animated, so something can go through, but it doesn't seem sure. like they can do it themselves. And I think one thing that's interesting about them is that while they're waiting for something if they're influencing stuff stuff south of the wall we've seen how prophecy works for everybody else and they are created ostensibly by the children of the forest where a lot of these powers seem to generate from so if they can see the future too it's very likely that they're playing their own melisandre game Hmm. or their own like um or a maester aemon game where they're waiting Mm. for all the right things to line up and then they're gonna go but they, they're having trouble seeing it because, as we've seen, especially from Brand's perspective, like, how do you interpret these things and get them right? Nobody does.
1: Yeah, that's a very good point. Maybe the others are as, as incomplete in their understandings of prophecy as the humans are. Maybe they've made mistakes or they know they have blind spots and are, are waiting on some element to uh, to complete the puzzle, so to speak.
0: Do you, and this, is a, this is a crazy question. I don't know if this has ever been addressed in the books oh, themselves. Yes, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Do the others, do they have the ability to breathe or are they just like completely, I mean, they're sort of like ice demons, right? And the reason I ask that is because if the horn theory is true and we have, you know, the fact that Jorman's horn could bring down the wall, right? Which is mentioned over and over again from A Clash of Kings on to John's penultimate chapter in A Dance with Dragons. Does that, do they need like bas- basically a human thrall or some sort of human working for them? Kind of like your Sour Billy Tipton, right? Character who has to like do all the work for the others that they have to, uh, that they can't do themselves, such as like potentially breathe right so they need someone to you know blow the horn of jorman and bring the wall down and maybe they even thought that the massive horn that vance produces in the storm of swords in john's 10th chapter maybe that was the they thought that was the actual horn itself i, I don't know i but I, they also were attacking the fist of the first man which was where the other horn what was you know the actual true horn so i don't know i, I have many questions many many questions for you gentlemen
1: as, as sadly we lack answers I think you know, Bran's visions will hopefully uh, I think be a component to this in the Winds of Winter Even as much as everything going on with John. I think uh, in, in many ways kind of Bran and John are, are Two halves of the whole in terms of getting Information about this aspect of the story And John might be more involved in getting Information about what's going on now and Bran might be more Involved in getting information on what's going on in the past And neither one will have the complete picture But the reader will by putting the two of them together okay. that, might, that might be generally what we're heading towards
0: Absolutely. So, thank you, Lady Pearl of Detroit, for the question. Excellent question. And welcome again. I think you are a relatively new patron. I know you did ask this question, I think, about two months ago, but thank you for the questions. Excellent. So, just a quick reminder, if you guys are a part of our patron at patreon.com forward slash not ASOF, we did release our first episode for Fever Dream called Plans to Make, where we're doing a chapter-by-chapter episode now that we've reached our $5,000 a month goal, which is awesome. Thank you, all patrons, regardless of your patrons, very, very much for doing that. Uh, If you guys are watching this episode live, it is out for our small counselors and our And our High Lords, ladies, and Kingsguard right now. Tomorrow will be out for our Sworn Swords and on Thursday for our Poor Fellows. If you guys are listening to this episode on the release date, that episode will be out for all patrons, $5 and above. So check us out at patreon.com forward slash asof. And we also wanted to do a very quick reminder about our next stretch goal, which is to make 1,000 patrons total, regardless of patronage or anything like that. And at the 1,000 patrons level, we did reference this in our Q&A section for you guys who are listening to this podcast episode. I didn't actually hear that. You have to go back and watch that on YouTube. If we get up to a thousand patrons, we will have a Nauticast analysis of "The Wind's a Winner, The Forsaken." But just imagine my hair blowing back, yeah.
1: Exactly, <laughs> my very favorite chapter in all of *A Song of Ice and Fire*, even though it technically hasn't been published. Uh, but <laughs> it's it's just a perfect slice of cosmic horror. That, that fits really well into what I was thinking about Euron, and even beyond anyone's perceptions of Euron, it's just a really well-written, just creep show of a chapter, like the, the House of the Undying with a big drop of horror put into the mix. So, if we get to a thousand patrons, we'll be doing a big old episode on that, and like I said, I might even let Jeff talk for part of it. Maybe I'll let him sing.
0: Uh, I sang oh, like, right there. I, did you, you didn't even catch me. I slipped it oh, by Oh, we're you. calling that singing, Slipped it we? by I thought you. something
1: had like happened <laughs> off screen that I didn't see, like someone had stabbed your leg. <laughs> And you were screaming in pain But no, yes, good That's good, good,
2: excellent, fantastic Wait, does this make Jeff the dusky woman To Emmett's Euron? No, you're
1: I w- Even before you were finishing the sentence I was not <laughs> yeah, Yes, that. yes, it does As soon as you <laughs> said Jeff is the dusky woman It's like, yep, Dusky Jeff true,
0: true Oh, guys, guys I will be anyone's dusky woman If you let me be <laughs> All right <laughs> Wait, you'll be Tywin? That's uh, weird mm. I, I didn't just
2: make an mm sound I don't know who that was <laughs> Emmett wasn't that out up out like, a, like a fine dinner.
0: <laughs> 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 All right, guys. So let's get on to the synopsis for Clash of Kings, John, one and two. And I apologize in advance. This is going to be a bit of a long synopsis because these are two. Well, the first chapter is very long and the second chapter is very short. So we have one long synopsis. It is actually two thirds of our document on Google Documents. So here is the synopsis for a Clash of Kings, John, one and two. John calls for Samuel Tarley softly through air, smelling of paper and dust. John looks around, seeing books, scrolls, and the glow of a candle somewhere. John blows out his own candle, sensing that maybe having a fire about isn't for the best with all of these old books. He follows the light and finds Samuel Tarley hunched over a table in the middle of the Castle Black Library. John asks whether Samuel has been in the library all night, and Sam isn't sure. Where Rast and the other night's watchmen thought that Samuel had deserted, John knew better. Desertion required courage. Mm-hmm. And Sam had little enough of that. Okay, John, I guess we're just going to keep going with this projection from your Game of Thrones chapters. Great. Sam asks if it's morning, and John calls Samuel a damn fool for not keeping to his bed. There ain't going to be any beds where we're going next, man. But Samuel was only here in the library looking for maps. And then he found the books, thousands of them. John thinks that the Winterfell Library only has like 100 books or so, but then quickly changes the subject to asking Samuel if he found the maps. He sure did. The paint had faded, but you can see where the mapmaker marked the sights of wildling villages. Samuel reached for another book. This, he said reverently, is the account of the journey from the Shadow Tower all the way to Lorne Point on the frozen shore, written by a ranger named Redwin. It's not dated, but he mentions a Doran Stark as king of the north, so it must be from before the conquest, John, They fought giants. Redwine even traded with the children of the forest. It's all here. John says that maybe Sam could write an account of their ranging, and he means so so well, but it isn't taken well. Sam isn't thrilled about the prospect of going north. He wishes he had more time to go through the library to um find more maps. Uh huh. But that task would take years to complete. Years to complete. Uh huh. Are you having a meta? Are you having a meta conversation with us, George here? But Mormont and readers want the maps and books sooner than months away at best. John picks up one of the crumbling scrolls and reports that it's crumbling. <laughs> Regular old watcher on the walls over here, John. Sam, nicer than me, says it's crumbling because, yeah, John, it's fucking old. The important books got copied over with many books having been copied half a hundred times. John reads through his crumbling scroll and and dismisses it as only about logistics. An inventory, Samuel corrects. Well, who cares how much pickled cod they ate 600 years ago, John wonders. I would. You can learn so much from ledgers like that. Truly, you can. It could tell you how many men were in the Night's Watch then, how they lived, what they ate, John, sophomore philosophy major, says they ate food and lived in houses or some shit. But Sam knows better. The books tell a story. They're treasures. Besides, Sam found books with the faces of trees. A book about the language of the children of the forest. Shit that the Citadel didn't even have. Hell, they even have scrolls from Old Valyria. Accounts of the seasons. Thousands of years old. The books will still be here when we return, John said. If we return, Samuel replies. John says they will be plenty safe. They're taking an assload of rangers. Two hundred. And Corn half-hand, is bringing another one her with him. Sam will be as safe as if he were back in, oh god, Horn Hill. Oh, John, sweet stupid boy. Why would you even fucking say that? Sammo managed a sad little smile. I was never very safe in my father's castle either. John thinks that the gods play cruel jests, and that Pip and Toad, the guys who desperately wanted to come on the ranging, are going to stay at Castle Black, while Sammo, who really doesn't want to go, is coming on the ranging. Mormont needed Sam to manage the ravens. Sam says that really... Anyone can can take care of the ravens. Hell, even Gren could do it. John too. But John says that his duty is to be the Elsie's squire and steward. He won't have the time. And besides, Sam, you said the words. You're a brother of the Night's Watch now. A brother of the Night's Watch shouldn't be so scared. We're all scared. We'd be fools if we weren't. And they have good reason to be frightened. Lots of rangers, to include Benjen Stark, had gone missing of late. And the two other guys Benjen Stark had taken with them wound up dead and then... Undead. John's fingers still twitch as he remembers them, and he sees the whites in his dreams with their blue, burning eyes and cold, black hands. But Sam didn't need to hear about that right now. There's no shame in my fear, my father told me. What matters is how we face it. Come, I'll help you gather up the maps. The vault opens to a tunnel known as the Wormwalks, small passages that you could only move through single file. These Wormwalks, so to speak, weren't often used in summer, but in winter it was the only way to get around when snows piled 40 to 50 feet high. John thinks that time is coming soon, and he ain't wrong. He knew from Amon that summer's end was at an end, from a bird they got from the Citadel. John had seen winter once before as a boy, but that was short and somewhat mild. This winter would be different. John and Samo emerge from the depths into a brisk wind and encounter Ghost, a very good boy who is sleeping next to the granary. Sam looks up to the wall high above them, and John feels like the wall is kind of looking like a living thing now, with sometimes different moods as the light hits the wall. The wall stretched east and west as far as the eye could see, so huge that it shrunk the timbered keeps and stone towers of the castle to insignificance. It was the end of the world, and we are going beyond it. And above the wall, you guessed it, the red comet hanging above and able to be seen by Day as Samuel points out. But John's not about comets. He needs to get the maps to the LC quick, fast, and in a hurry. The two men, boys. John's in that kind of middle area. Not a boy, not a man. He's a man of the Night's Watch. There we go. Walk through a mostly deserted courtyard of Castle Black. And why is Castle Black deserted? Well, I'll tell you. Because most of the rangers were out at Molestown digging for buried treasure. At least Gren, Pip, Halder, and Toad were. They did want Sam and John to come, but Sam is scared of scary sex workers. Hijinks. And John, well, John be John. John had wanted no part of it. Do what you want, he told Toad. I took a vow. Okay, John, should read it. John and Sam pass by a sept, and John hears people singing to a hymn and reflects that some people want to go to Bone Town, other people want to go to church. John's not sure which people felt better afterward. John's not a church boy, though. He kept the old gods, the ones where his church is out in the wild and the werewood trees. The seven have no power beyond the wall, John thought, but my gods will be waiting. yes. Yes, they will be John. John spies Sir Andrew Tarth training new boys outside of the armory, and it's a pretty poor crop, to be told. Two blonde boys, an older man, a ragged clubfoot man, and some idiot who thought he was a warrior. The last one was now getting a lesson on the error of his ways from Sir Andrew, who's a bit gentler than Sir Alistair Thorne, but still brought the bruises. John stops to watch. What do you make of them, Snow? Donald Noy says, standing at the door of the armory, bare-chested and sexy as hell. John thinks that Noy wasn't pretty, which I beg to differ. He's standing there without his shirt on and just his apron with one arm. But, anyways, I I digress. But Donald Noy had been a good friend to John. So John tells Donald that the boys smell of summer. He asks Donald where the boys come from, and the armorer helpfully replies that they came from a dungeon in Town. A brigand, a barber, a beggar, two orphans, and a boy whore. With such do we defend the realms of men. John smiles a secret smile at Sam and thinks they'll do. John and Sam did anyways. So Donald asks whether John has heard about what Rob has been up to of late. John is in the know, but he's unsure about it. Rob? A king? He used to play games and spar with Rob. Hell, John had even shared his first cup of wine with Rob. But they didn't share mother's milk. And now Rob will drink summer wine while John will drink snow melt. Rob will make a good king, John said loyally. Noy eyes John and asks if he'll actually make a good king, given that the armorer thought the same about Robert and forged Robert's warhammer. He was Robert's man at Storm's End until he lost his arm. He knew Robert and his brothers and his father both. I tell you this Robert was never the same after he put on that crown. Some men are like swords, made for fighting. Hang them up, and they go to rust. So John asked after Robert's brothers. The armorer considered that for a moment. Robert was the true steel. Stannis is pure iron black and hard and strong yes but brittle the way iron gets he'll break before he bends and Renly that one he's copper bright and shiny pretty to look at but not worth all that much at the end of the day because he's a terrorist I guess Donald didn't get around to read my essay which so sad so so sad John wonders what metal rob is but he doesn't ask given noise background the armor probably thought that Joffrey was the lawful king and rob a traitor Regardless, the men of the Night's Watch really didn't talk about politics up here at the wall. They took no part, leaving aside their past loyalties. The Night's Watch takes no sides. Yeah, okay, John, sure. John says he's off to see Mormont, and Noy tells him to get going, and he asks for the old gods to be with John on his journey. And John's to bring back Uncle Benjen. okay? John says, of course I will, because he hasn't read the rest of the books yet, and then Sam, John, and Sam are off to climb the stairs of the King's Tower to make his way to Mormont. They make their way to Mormont to drop off the books and maps, and Mormont grumbles that they took a long-ass time making their way to him. He orders them to put the books and maps down for his inspection, and then Thorin Smallwood steps out to give John and Sam a cool look. Smallwood had once been Alistair Thorne's henchman, and he didn't like these rascally boys. Thorin turns to Mormont and tells him that he should stay tight at Castle Black, but Mormont ain't about that. If you were ever LC, you may do as you please, but it seems to me that I have not died yet, nor have the brothers put you in my place. Smallwood argues and says that he's First Ranger and he should be in command, but again, Mormont ain't about that. He's going himself north of the Wall. He won't be sending men to look for Smallwood when he disappears. P.S. Thorin, Benjen Stark is still the First Ranger until his fate is known for certain. Now stop wasting my time. we ride right at First Light, or have you forgotten? Thor Smallwood gets to his feet all saucy and gives a begrudging, yes sir, and steps out of the room. Smallwood gone, the Elsie huffs and puffs about Smallwood, accosting him for being too old to lead the ranging. He asks the boys whether he looks old or frail, and Stam starts doing that squeaking thing, uh, 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 but John puts in that warm up look strong as a, um, as a, uh, don't cozen me, Snow. You know I won't have it. Let me have a look at these maps. So Mormont starts going through the maps, complaining about how the maps are all old, and these are all that they could find? Really, guys? Samuel stammers out an apology about how eve everything is disordered inside the library, but Mormont and Blovin, <coughs> or his uh, Mormont's Raven, are upset about how the old the maps are. But John puts in that, sure, the villages will move, but the terrain will be the same. Mormont grunts, as he often does, and asks Samuel whether he chose those ravens yet. Well, Sam hasn't. Amon is going to help them pick him in the evening. Mormont instructs Sam that he wants strong birds, the best birds. If they're all butchered out there in the woods, yikes, he wants the world to know how they died. <laughs> Sam goes all speechless at this idea of being butchered, which, yeah, you kind of understand where Samuel's coming from, and Mormont tells Samo a lovely story about how his lady mother told him that if he stood around with his mouth open, that a weasel would, make it, would mistake it for a lair and run down his throat. If you have something to say, say it. Otherwise... Beware of weasels. He dismisses Samwell to Aemon. Now alone with Jon, he asks Samwell if he's a fool, and yeah, he had originally intended to send Samwell to Renly's camp, but he figures that Renly wouldn't put up with Samwell's shivering shenanigans. Jon asks after Renly and what Mormont wants with him, and Mormont tells him that he wants his usual. Men, horses, swords, armor, grain, cheese, wine, wood, and wool, and nails. They'll take what they can get. Maybe Sir Alistair Thorne has reached King's Landing by now, and maybe Joffrey will give the watch something, but the Lancers ain't friends of the watch. John says they have the white hand. Maybe that'll help. (laughs) No, sorry, John, it won't. Mormont wishes he had another hand for Renly, and John healthily puts in that Diamond believes they can find anything beyond the wall. Yes, yes, you can, John. You really should not be wishing for this. Mormont snorts and says that Diamond claims the last time they went north, they found a 15-foot-tall bear. Absurd, right? But maybe it's the case. There's dead men walking, but Mormont's never seen a giant bear. Yet. Given all the talk of hands, Mormon asks if after John's. It's doing better. Itches, though. Mormon asks if John could build Longclaw, and he can, but with pain. But he's working through it with Amon's help. Blind he may be, but Amon knows what he's about. I pray the gods, let us keep him around for another 20 years. Do you know that he might have been king? Well, no. John's kind of surprised at this. Sure, he knew that Amon's dad was king, but he figured Amon for a younger son. Well, in that, John's correct. Aemon's granddaddy was the II Targaryen, and his dad was Protostanus stannis Targaryen. Aemon was named for Aemon the Dragonite, who may or may not have been Darren's true father. Regardless, Aemon took to books, not swordplay, and was sent off to the Citadel when he was 9 or 10 years old. He was also 9th or 10th in the line of succession, and then tragedy struck in House Targaryen. Aemon was at his books when the eldest of his uncles, the heir apparent, was slain in attorney mishap. Attorney mishap, interesting. He left two sons, but they followed him to the grave not long after, during the Grey Sickness. King Darren was also taken, so the crown passed to Darren's second son, Ares. John wonders, is, is this Mad King Ares? But no, this was Ares the first. was at the Citadel at the time, having forged half a dozen links on a master's chain. He served at some lord's court, and then Ares wed his sister, and was all was well, except that Ares died, and the crown passed to Makar. Big Daddy Makar had all his sons come to court, wanting their counsel, but Amon refused. He didn't want to usurp his older brothers. So, he served Darren the Drunkard, Makar's oldest son, until, actually, tragically, Darren the Drunkard died. Next up on the docket was Hedge Knight villain Arian Brightflame, who drank wildfire and died, thankfully. But then, Makar himself also died against an Outlaw Lord very sad. John knows most of this given that he had Master Lewin teaching him history back at Winterfell, so he tells Mormont that a great council was called, how Arian's son was passed over as well as Darren's daughter, and the crown fell to Aegon Big Egg Targaryen. Mormont offers some correction to this, yes and no. First they offered it quietly to Aemon, and quietly he refused. The gods meant for him to serve, not to rule, he told them. He had sworn a vow and would not break it, though the High Septon himself offered to absolve him. In the end, they turned to Big Egg, Aemon's younger brother, and Aemon, knowing that his presence would be bad for Egg, decided to seek for the wall and has remained there since that time. And all this as House Targaryen fell into ruin and then desolation. Blood Raven, um, Mormont's raven, starts saying king, 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 and Jon comments that the bird likes the word. Mormont says it's an easy word to say, and Jon jokes around that, well, maybe the bird means for Mormont to have a crown. The realm has three kings already, and that's too, too many for my liking, Mormont said, stroking the raven under the beak with his finger, but all the while, his eyes never left Jon Snow. Jon feels all weird inside, so he asks Mormont why he's telling him all this stuff about Amon. Oh, no reason, Jon, just that, like your bro is like king of the north, you're kind of like Amon in that way, with a king for a brother. Jon says he has a vow too, but Mormont snorts at him and talks about all the men who have broken vows on the wall. When John puts in that he always knew that Rob would be the lord of Winterfell, our good LC gives another snort and says, a lord's one thing, a king's another. They're going to do all sorts of great things for Rob. He gets to wear nice clothes with a beautiful princess and get sons on her. And you, John, you're going to be all in black with neither wife nor children. They're going to call Rob your grace and sing his praises. Does that bother you, John? Does it? Does it? Tell me that none of this troubles you, John, and I'll name you a liar, and I know I have the truth of it. John sits up straight like his mother told him to, oh wait, not his mom, never mind, that's kind of a little bit of a sensitive topic right there, and if it did trouble me, what might I do, bastard that I am? What will you do, Mormon asked? bastard as you are. Be troubled, said John, and keep my vows. Sometime later, John and the Night's Watch are north of the wall, passing by a village known as White Tree. John reflects that it's not much of a village given that there's like, all of like, four one-room houses about, roofed with, wa- with wad, roofed with sod, and shuttered windows made of ragged hides. But above the houses looms the pale limbs and dark red leaves of a massive weirwood. John thinks it's the largest tree he's ever seen, given that it's eight feet wide with its branches shadowing the entire village. But John isn't bothered so much by the tree's size as, well, you know, the haunted fucking face carved into the tree with a large fucking mouth large enough to swallow a sheep. But of course, there are not sheep bones in the mouth itself, nor is that the sheep skull in the ashes. Mormont rides up, frowning about how the tree is old, but he's not that old, guys. He wants everyone to know this, especially you, Thorn Smallwood. Get your ass over here. John says the tree is powerful, and that Mor- Smallwood is there to helpfully offer to cut the tree down. But John says that no lies can be said in front of the heart tree. Ned had told him as much, and Mormont's dad had said similarly. Mormont wants to take a look at the skull, though, and they dismount to give it a look-see. John dismounts, thinking about having Call on his back and how the men had joked around and said it was a, quote, bastard sword for a bastard. He reaches into the maw of the wherewood tree and pulls out another skull. Great, so many skulls. He brings the skull to Mormont, and we get some good wildling lore. The wildlings burn their dead. We've always known that. Now, I wish I'd asked them why, when there were still a few around to ask. John remembers Arthur and it's like, uh, Warmont, it's, it's really not a fucking mystery while the wildlings are burning their dead. God damn it. But the L.C. continues saying how he wishes he knew what happened or who burned them, and especially where the wildlings had gone. The children of the forest allegedly could speak to the dead, but Warmont can't. He throws the skull back to the tree and orders his men to go through the houses. He wants another ranger, giant is this particular ranger's name, to climb the tree to have a look about and bring the hounds. The rangers go through the houses in Paris and John gets paired with none other. Then Quaith, not Quaith, not Quaith, Quaith is not in this chapter. We're not going to get to her for a little while then. John was paired with Dower Edison Tullet, a squire, gray of hair and thin as a pike, whom the other brothers called Duller said. (sighs) Bad enough when the dead come walking, he said to John as they crossed the village. Now the old bear wants them to be talking as well. No good will come of that, I warrant. And who's to say the bones won't lie? Why should the dead make a man more truthful or even clever? The dead are likely dull fellows, full of tedious complaints. The ground's too cold. My gravestone should be larger. Why does he get more worms than I do? You know, I could just spend the rest of the synopsis just reading Duller said quotes, but I can't. I know. I know I can. John looks through a door and sees packed earth and no furniture about. The only sign that anyone lived in the huts is a pile of ashes beneath a smoke hole and a pile of straw which apparently served as a bed. What a dismal place to live, John said. Well, I was born in a house much like this, declared Duller said. Those were my enchanted years. Later, I fell on hard times. John and Ed poke around for a bit, but then Ed smells old dung and a pile of straw that may have been a bed at one time. They search through the straw, but don't find anything. And that's par for the course. All of the huts turn out the same, with the people, possessions, and livestock gone, and the village itself hadn't been attacked. This was the same thing they had seen both in White Tree and the previous three villages they had searched. John wonders what happened, and Ed says that something bad happened, something unimaginable, except that Ed can imagine it, because he can imagine the worst-case scenario for anything. The hounds that Mormont summons start sniffing around with Storm of Swords prologue POV Chet, cursing them for, I guess, smelling around or something. When John catches Chet's sight, though, Chet's eyes narrows. He doesn't like John. Hmm, wonder if that's going to have any payoffs in Storm of Swords. Yes, it will. Regardless, there's not much going on in this village, pure nothingness. Gone, cried Mormont's raven, flapping up the werewood to perch above them. Gone, gone, gone. Thorin Smallwood puts in that there were wildlings in this village a mere year ago, but Jarman Buckwell, commander of the scouts, says that, yeah, lots of shit changes in a year. Like Robert Baratheon. He was king a year ago. But Sir Maladur Locke has it that it's all for the good that the wildlings are gone. Fewer enemies. Uh-huh, you fucking idiot. Stop talking. John hears a sound from above, and Giant, who in reality is barely five feet tall, descends from a tree and reports that there's a lake to their north with small hills to the west. Smallwood requests to camp at White Tree, but Mormon says they're heading to the lake to camp, and he needs to write to Maester Aemon. So John retrieves quill, parchment, and ink, and brings them to Elsie, who writes a chapter summary for Clash of Kings John 2, at White Tree, the fourth village, all empty, the wild thing's gone. Elsie Mormont summons Samotari to get one of the birds to deliver a message, and John mounts his Garan to find Sammo. He passes by a Night's Watchman enjoying some salted beef, pissing, scratching, and talking. The command passes for them to settle up, and they get quiet and get to their task, with Buckwell scouts ahead, Smallwood and command of the Vanguard, the Elsie with the main force, Malador Locke with the baggage train, and Pack Horses, and Sir Auden Withers with the rearguard. 200 Night's Watch bros, half mounted in total. They had started their movement from Castle Black passing through game trails known as the Ranger Broads that pushed into the Horn Forest, camped beneath the starry sky, and looked up at the Red Comet still up there, still beguiling our POVs as to its meaning. And while the party had first started out in good spirits, joshing with each other as the bros are wont to do, the mood had gotten tense and silent the farther they had moved into the woods. The farther they had moved north, the woods, the abandoned villages, everything is making these bros scurred. John takes his gloves off and lets his burned fingers feel the cold air. He thinks about how he used to run those fingers through Arya's hair, and he hopes she's doing well, and oh boy, John, bad news on that front coming up in our next Arya chapter. He flexes his fingers, knowing that he needs them to be nimble and strong to grasp a sword beyond the wall. He finds Samuel Tarly, though, watering horses with the other stewards, with the cage of ravens on one of the wagons behind one of the pack horses he maintains. As John approaches, he hears the ravens saying, what sounds like words? He asks whether Samwell has been teaching the ravens words, and Samuel admits that, yeah, he has. Three of them even know how to say, snow. 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 One bird croaking my name was bad enough, said John, and snow's nothing but a black brother wants to hear about. Snow often meant death in the north. Sam asks what they found at White Tree, and John, recount, and John recounts that they found nothingness and bones. Samuel takes a bird from the cage, attaches the LC's message, and sends him flying with the command to fly home now, brave one. Home. Home. You're free. Home. No, he doesn't actually say that. Sam wishes he could fly home too, and John wonders if Sam is still afraid. Well, he is, of course, but not as scared as he was before. The first night, he thought that someone pissing was the wildlings coming to slit his throat. But hey, the dawn rose and Samuel was able to get vertical. And though Sam is craven and he's sore all over, he kind of likes it out here. He's barely scared all the times these days. Plus, Samuel's even been working on his maps. Yay, fucking maps. The world is strange, John thought. 200 brave men had left the wall. And the only ones who were not growing more fearful was Sam, the self-confessed coward. We'll make a range you yet, John joked. Next thing, you'll want to be an outrider like Gren. Shall I speak to the old bear? Sam says, please, please do not do this thing, and pulls up his hood on his cloak. Samuel was hoping to spend the night in the village and sleep under a roof, but John says there ain't enough roofs for all the men. John mounts up and rides back up the column, having seen enough of White Tree. Just then, Ghost emerges from the trees and nearly scares John's horse half to death. Most of the time, Ghost was off hunting away from the main line of advance, but these days, Ghost had not been been having much success at hunting. The woods were as empty as the villages, Diamond had told them the night around the fire. We're a large party, John had said. The game's probably been frightened away by the noise we make on the march. Frightened away by something, no doubt, Diamond said. John settles his horse from ghostly terror, and rides up to Mormont with his Darwolf at his side. The Elsie asks if the raven has been dispatched, and John says, Yep, mission accomplished. Oh, also Samuel is teaching the birds how to talk. Mormont snorts, and God he is always snorting in these chapters, getting a little annoying, and says that Samuel will probably end up regretting doing that. They ride in silence for a while until John asks what Benjamin would have done had found all these villages empty. He would have made it his purpose to learn why, and it may be someone or something did not want that known. Mormont says there'll be 300 when Corrin Halfhand arrives, so if they meet with any enemy, they'll beat the dog piss out of them. They're going to find their enemy. And that is the Clash of Kings, John One and Two. Sorry, super long synopsis. I know. Again, it's like two thirds of our document here in Google Docs. Uh, but I these chapters, I I, I like them. They're, they're good chapters. I think uh, on the whole, I think I prefer John One over John Two. I think John One does a great job of kind of reacquainting us, re, reacquainting us with John's thematic impulses and kind of decisions from the first book. Gives us some more backstory about Aemon Targaryen, which I know that Matt is very excited to talk about here in a little bit, and gets us reinvested in the struggles of the Men of the Wall. Well. Sean, too, is kind of a short chapter that's almost entirely tone-setting, right? For the supernatural horror that awaits these poor bastards north of the wall, poor bastards north of the wall, get it? Okay, I'll, I'll quit. I'll stop. What'd you guys think?
1: I was singing the praises of Bran's A Clash of Kings storyline last week, and my feelings on John's chapters are more conflicted. I would put him as the second weakest POV in the book, the weakest being Danny. The structure of it feels less well-defined to me than his other storylines in the series. As we talked about last time we checked in with John, his arcs in A Game of Thrones, A Storm of Swords, and A Dance with Dragons all culminate in a temptation regarding riding south to rejoin House Stark in some capacity. A Clash of Kings doesn't have that same trajectory, and while it does have a hell of an ending on its own terms... All of John's best material in this book is relegated to the back half once Corrin half-hand shows up. We've defended George's travelogues on the whole, but I do think there are some pacing issues early on with John in A Clash of Kings. Neither of these chapters make it into the show. They start off John in Season 2 at Crestor's Keep, and I can't really blame them. That being said, there's still a lot of great stuff here in isolation. George never stops doing impar- important character work for John, and what really makes John's A Clash of Kings storyline work is that John is rapidly becoming a more distinctive and interesting character. What do you think, Matt?
2: I had a lot of thoughts about these chapters and I would say just like off the start we talked about this a little bit during the pre-show these are boring John chapters they are not particularly exciting he's kind of like an action hero sort of character most of the time he's sort of like a character you play in a video game and these ones not much is happening it's like he's walking through it and just like opening and reading books and like Getting to know how his horse works. It's like the, the training session for what he's going to go through next. But I did pull out some things that I thought were particularly interesting. One thing that really struck me about this, and this is going to come up a lot as we talk through this, especially because of Eamon, was, um, how much John internally is acting like Duncan the tall, Mm -hmm. through the, through the head knight hedge knight and through the rest of duncan egg where there's all these really interesting things happening around him lots of information a lot of people like doing like having strategy and this like there's crazy stuff happening and he's this kind of like head down focusing on the one thing in front of him which in this case happens to be the maps like sam's Mm -hmm. going through all the really cool information he finds and one of them is like oh my god look i found scrolls from the freehold of valyrian john's like yeah but where are those maps bro i need those maps for lc <laughs> and then it, like keeps going he's like wow this is an account of somebody that went to go see the giants and trade with the children and like their speech and like learn about your old gods and john's like but like i need those maps <laughs> like can we move on with this kind of stuff and that's kind of what he's like this whole time and dunks a little bit like that too especially i would say during the mystery night it really comes to the fore where you see characters like blood raven and all these all these plots happening around him, important things. And he's like, you can tell he's like a character of destiny, but he doesn't realize it because he's just a character in the story. I felt, I felt that was really strongly showing up in here. It it actually kind of reminded me from the show, the Prince Rhaegar reveal where um, she says Prince Rhaegar and (laughs) Sam's too frustrated and doesn't know it. That like happens many times. I would say in these chapters, important things are happening and blowing by him because his focus is elsewhere, actually mostly on the others. Which I think is something that, um, is not explicit most of the time, but you can tell the, the gears are always turning. It's his first priority is make sure he doesn't piss off Mormont. And his second priority is he's always thinking about Othor and Jaffer and those kind of underlying information. That's, it's kind of like a Tyrion sort of thing that George does later where Tyrion's always working on something, but it's not always explicitly being told to you. I also thought this, the, the first chapter was very odd. Um, because, like you were saying, the tone and like the pacing, hmm. it it was it was an info dump. But that doesn't normally happen to John. He, George usually does it more elegantly. He has uh, characters discover it, like actually like Sam's doing, or he has Tyrion think about it or recall it or it comes up naturally. It's kind of like John walked into a room and just like information started <laughs> blasting through a speaker at him, and then he walks out and he's like, "There, I did it." And it was something I was thinking about as I was reading it, where it kind of feels like this maybe was a very late edition chapter, like something that wasn't there initially um, because of the information that's in it. Like if you go back through it, the information that's presented really is you get a lot of information about the Targaryens and their history, especially their genealogy. You learn about John's previous endpoint in a game of Thrones. Then you pick up a lot on the old gods and the children of the forest and the giants and the weirwoods and all these things being real and terrifying. You get a lot about Maester Aemon and then more he's thinking about the whites and the others. And it's like, it's like someone went to him and said, like, George, nobody knows that John's your main character. <laughs> like <laughs> sure. everyone thinks it was Ned and you just killed him. Hmm. Like John's kind of like a bit character in a game of Thrones. Well, not really a bit character, but he's, he's not the obvious hero. I would say at that point, you could make the mistake of thinking it was maybe Rob or definitely Daenerys, hmm. sure. but not, not Jon Snow. And it's like, this feels very much like an editor's note. Like I know you don't want to, I know you haven't going beyond the wall already, but you really need to go back and push to the audience that this stuff is important. And I think, um, the scene where he walks out of the wormways and the comets going overhead and then ghost walks up and then there's a white Raven from the Citadel saying that summer is over. And then he looks at the wall and sees how it's uh, like a frozen river. And then he sees the snow in it, and he's thinking like, wow, I'm going into like to the past the end of the world. It's like, he needed to remind his audience like a little bit that Jon's plot is important and that it's like mystical and weird and it's going there because I don't think anybody knows after
0: a Game of Thrones. It's pretty much just an internal drama for him. Well, it's interesting, so, right? And when we actually got to see like how Ant-Girl actually edits books, we got mm-hmm. like the part of A Dance of Dragons. You know, we have a picture of Ant-Girl editing Jamie's single chapter in A Dance of Dragons and she has that note in there being like, you know, George, for you it might be like yes, just yesterday when you were writing this chapter and you are very familiar with Jamie but the readers have not been with Jamie now for upwards of you know six years since he was in A Feast for Crows. So you need to go back and kind of reintroduce us to the themes of Jamie there. So I think that's a really good meta theory on your part. You should, you should get into the meta theory of writing if, if you want to. I should to. write some of those. You should you do know? that, yeah.
2: Well, especially this is the book where we get the visions of the undying, right? With the, uh, the, the blue rose and the mm-hmm. ice wall. It's important looking back on this chapter, in particular, where John thinks it's nothing. And then to so the rest of the world, him standing there is a huge deal because of the prophecy and all that stuff around him. And I also thought one thing was super, super interesting was how much Amon was mentioned in these two chapters and doesn't appear. Hmm. And it's kind of like, I I think I talked about something. On girls gone canon. We talked about his speech to John and the... Um, the love is the death of duty and how I thought that was kind of like a synopsis for his character, but it's such a short chapter and it happens so quickly. And the rest of the story moves on because then it dies and then everything goes crazy in King's Landing. you can forget it. And this feels like another editor's note when they're like, if this is actually your point for John, if you need him to think about like his vows and duty and where he's going as a character, you need to go back and reemphasize this. If this chapter is as important as you think it is. And then you see that it basically, Reintroduces everything about and Read the entire conversation comes back. And he's brought up even in the second chapter where it's like, he's like, Amen, <clears throat> pay attention to Amen. Everything <laughs> he said's really important, but you don't know why because you don't know he's a Targaryen yet, basically. And then uh, something for Emmett that I thought was really cool was I, I, I'm currently in the middle of reading a bunch of Lovecraft stories and reading this chapter, particularly the first one, and then going beyond the wall so much uh like in particular the the dream quest of unknown Kadath with the his character randolph carter where he starts off in his normal dream world and he decides i'm gonna go past what i know and see what happens and he starts meeting everything he knows gets twisted and evil and scary and he meets things he's never heard of and everything's terrifying that he thought was comforting and that's kind of happening to john especially as we get to white tree village um and there's also a lot of shades of Lord of the Rings, I would say, right here. There was um a lot of Frodo and Sam. Ah, hey, look at that. John and Sam, basically the same. Uh, going into Mordor, that's kind of... It was like a frozen Mordor thing. That's kind of what I thought. But also, there's elements, I think, of Faramir's charge ordered by Denethor, where Elsie Mormont's plan is so suicidal mm. that it almost feels Denethor-like, where it's like, what are you doing? And it's hard not to see the, the comparisons where all the men are like yeah, we're going to die, and this is stupid. Why are we doing this? <laughs>
1: well put, sir. It does definitely have that, like, a slow burn suicide charge. Like, it's getting gradually, gradually ramped up, and it's not just logistically, but morally, as we'll see when we get into later parts of John's Clash of Kings chapters. And, we're like, we're making this deal with Craster, and Corn seems like a baddest, but also his men torture people. And you, you get that sense of, uh, you know, we're going to fail at this, and also underneath that question of, should we be even be here? Should we even be doing this? And that's that's very much a slow burn in these couple of chapters but I think the theme is present. What about you, Jeff?
0: Oh well, first I want to compliment Matt for picking things that both you and I were interested in in his like little like kind of thing. That's that's excellent you know, calling the bat of stuff for me and then doing the eldritch apocalypse and the lovecraftian themes for you. So this excellent little little clap for Matt there. Excellent job, sir. I know you guys, I know what you want. <laughs> Emmett wants the eldritch
2: stuff, and I got I got right there for it, especially cuz like that's this fresh in my mind, the sure. old gods and how much they're familiar to Cthulhu and all the various weird things that come from the outer space sort of thing. Very similar to the Weirwoods if they were frozen in place. But anyway, yeah,
0: go ahead. Yeah, but I mean, it's interesting. I think like something we're, I think we're, we're all kind of coming around for these chapters about is that Jon's in kind of an interesting place in Clash. I mean, we were forgiven for thinking that Jon's will he won't he over the Night's Watch has been resolved at the end of the Game of Thrones. But Jon's first chapter in Clash pushes this eternal conflict for John right back into the forefront, you know, alerting readers that this is going to be a consistent theme in John's story, although not for a Clash of Kings, I'll talk about it here in a second. The twist here is that John's second temptation is not to join with Rob in avenging Edward Stark. Rather it's will you, John, will you usurp Rob's crown? Will you attempt to gain a crown for yourself? And, and I find this shift kind of fascinating, right? And it gets me excited for events to come for John's arc in I, I guess the wind's a winner, right? I think like that's that's the thing about this chapter, right? Is that John 1 almost feels like a precursor to things that are going to be occurring in the Winds of Winter, where John will likely receive Rob's will, will likely be offered the crown at some point to become the king in the north. And to kind of see how all that setup is being built up here in Clash is interesting, right? Because for the rest of John's arc in a Clash of Kings, he's not going to be facing this temptation. Most of his, in fact, the entirety of his arc going forward is all going to be about. What he's supposed to do with the wildlings, what his duties are to the Night's Watch, how far is he supposed to take his vows, and what is he supposed to do with, you know, people who probably should not be killed, like Egret. Is he going to execute her? Or is he going to let her go? Is he going to join with the Knights? Is he going to stay with the Night's Watch? Or is he going going to join the wildlings? But then, okay, so then we get to the second chapter, and I think this is kind of a little bit of a problem chapter. I don't mind it. I like it fine, but I find there's a bit of a tonal inconsistency between John 1 and 2. You know, by the time we're in John 2, they're already in the fourth village that the Night's Watch has been to. And John's internal thoughts and external dialogue and action center around what's happened to the wildlings. And yes, it's great to have that kind of set up for events to come, mostly events in A Storm of Swords, not necessarily in A Clash of Kings... Uh, but I do wonder whether this chapter might have been stronger if the reader had time to marinate in John's thought process after that really impactful conversation with Elsie Mormont and whether that would be acting in concert with the night's, mission, night's watch, with the night's Watch mission north of the wall. That might have been a stronger thing for George to have done. But I do think, you know, again, it's not a bad chapter. It's just one that I find like it's a little bit jarring to do for for John two to be occurring right after John one. We have no Thoughts of John being like, well, and then uh, Mormont said this. And this is what I'm thinking about this. Like, we don't get any of that stuff until, like, A Dance with Dragons, right? Essentially in A Storm of Swords at the end of that arc where Stannis offers John to become Lord of Winterfell. I mean, it's kind of weird, right? Do you guys think that's it's weird or is that, am I mm-hmm. kind of out of place in that?
2: Uh, I definitely think it's weird, especially because we're skipping John's first journey through the Wall, right? Him going on this range and the first time he's ever walked through it. Like, why is that not this chapter? Right. Why, like all these conversations could have been elsewhere. The idea that he had to put it in the worm ways with Sam in the library and then a redux of Elsie Marmont's conversation. And then in a random wilding village, it's like it, the fact that it feels kind of unpolished, I would say, even for Gurm <laughs> makes me is a, again why I think it's kind of these were late additions where he, um, he got told he needed to put these kind of things in and he went back and did it didn't have a lot of the gardening time he normally likes because there's so much more impactful ways he could have done this. Even the show basically said like, yeah, these chapters suck. I'm going, (laughs) I'm going straight to Crashers Keep and it's
1: like, yeah, that makes total sense. I think it, it fits into what we've been saying about Clash of Kings on the whole is that it's not as tight a book as a Game of Thrones, structurally speaking, but if you just break it down to the content and the individual scenes, I think it is stronger. Like, uh, these chapters feel kind of amorphous in terms of why they're there and what the overall role is, but I, I don't think, with the exception of John's conversation with Maester Eamon, I don't think he had a scene in book one that was quite as rich as the conversations he has in, in this opening chapter here. So, to get into the body of the chapters themselves, we start off in the Night's Watch library. And I think it's, it's always worth noting when George calls our attention to the written word, he's probably making some kind of statement that we should be responding to, And the Night's Watch library is kind of a curious place to begin, given that the rest of John's A Clash of Kings chapters are concerned with this hard-bitten journey into the wild, not so much the kind of themes that come up in the library. There is a a meta angle to this, and that's kind of surrounding John and Sam with pages from the start emphasizes their status as fictional characters. And Sam, if the show is to be believed on this count, and I think it is, is the one who writes A Song of Ice and Fire. Mm -hmm. So that makes, makes complete sense. It's like they're in this kind of liminal space between the book and the reader, but... It also puts them in context with the history of the Night's Watch specifically, and it's, it's something about which they both have valid and important points to make. I mean, it's, it's easy on first read to feel that, you know, John feels like he's just being kind of dumb on purpose almost, and Sam is the one who's queuing cu- in, but I think they both have important points. Sam is right that you can actually learn a great deal from incidental details about people who lived in the past, and you can build up a lot of great history out of that. But John has a good point to make, even if he makes it kind of in an immature fashion, which is that they are connected by their setting and their task and their common humanity, that they they were humans just like we are. And the, the same thing is true about the wildlings. They're humans just like you are. And it's you can think about that, I think, as like the two sides of storytelling, right? It's like you creating a world all your own versus connecting it to that of the reader. You've got continuity versus change and heritage versus transformation. That's really what John and Sam are talking about. Mm-hmm. And part of that transformation is about getting past your narratives, past this dry, dusty history, your preconceptions and the weight of prophecy bearing down on you, especially when it comes to the wildlings. Like, you have to forge your own path. Jon's understanding of the wildlings is going to transform hugely over the course of his story. And if season eight is canon on this count, and again, I think it really is, he joins them in the end as he himself fades into legend and myth. So in, in that regard, even if this doesn't feel like like a, a perfect foundation stone for a storyline and the clash of kings specifically again it does feel like it fits into john's characterization as a whole
2: mm. i don't uh to add on to that i think we have the a real benefit of being the readers of the story we've read a dance with dragons we've we know where this is going that it's a high fantasy story that it's that that's that's what's happening if you think of it from john's perspective yeah i think he's has a i mean i made fun of him but he does have a point that like yeah, who cares about this dusty old information? Like, nobody really knows the others are back or even where they came from. They haven't seen the scene where the children shove a dagger into his chest or anything like that. Like, why would he know this is important? It just looks like a nerd nerding out, which is fair. But from a meta level, it is very important going back that George
0: dumped this information on us, especially in the, uh, John 1. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, the other point in aspect of, of Sam's journey exploration of the library comes in, like, how the books are actually described, right? They're faded and crumbling, Mm -hmm. and the scrolls are kind of, they kind of symbolize to me the decay that the Night's Watch has undergone. I mean, remember that back in the Game of Thrones, we learned that at one point in time during Aegon's conquest, the Night's Watch was 10,000 strong, and now the great might of the Night's Watch is... Three hundred guys going north of the wall to confront Raider and his one hundred thousand motherfuckers. I think you know we're we're, we're in a, this place isn't a bad spot. I think like the the way that the the library is set up and how we have all these crumbling manuscripts and crumbling books are helped to symbolize that. And then and looking at the events that Sam was talking John about, it really indicates a much more vibrant Nights Watch, not just in terms of numbers, but in terms of. Trade, language, copying down books, doing all the things that, you know, the historical monastic lifestyle in Western Europe did and also Eastern Europe and other places, too. You know, you got Valyrian scrolls, maps, and even a recount of trades, like we said, between the Night's Watch and the Children of the Forest. This all should be, like, fascinating stuff. And while Mormont's later going to Cascade Sam for the old maps and how old they are, and then really, like, Mormont, like, shut up for a second. Like, why haven't you kept up the GIS branch of the Night's Watch here, man? I mean, like, you could be out there, like, having your Night's Watch rangers there annotating new maps and things like that, but instead you're just bitching about how Sammo didn't find the best maps. It was only these old crumbling maps there. It, it's a great way to symbolize where the Night's Watch is versus where it's been, utilizing both how understrength the Night's Watch is, only 300, again, brothers are going to make the expedition north of the Wall, and how it's not maintained its vital store of books. And John relates that the Night's Watch library has many more books than the Winterfell library, which I had forgotten the detail that the Winterfell library only had 100 books in total. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a small number of books. I mean, the, the Night's Watch library is going to be key and pivotal. It's too bad it's all going to get you know destroyed by uh, the others as they come south, of course. And, and Samuel points out that this is a treasure, and the Night's Watch has just completely disregarded it. Like, there's no one there but Samwell there, and he's noticing that people aren't really utilizing the library when they could be utilizing the library. And part of that is, again, something we find out in Game of Thrones, is that very few of the current crop of Night's Watchmen can read. Was it like 1 in 10 could read, and fewer than that could write or stuff like that, or command and things like that? Something that Mormont brings up to Tyrion in one of Tyrion's early chapters in the Game of Thrones. So we're talking about an institution in complete decay. Absolutely. I really, I really, really enjoy this. Um, me and uh, Bookshelf
2: Stud you, and uh, San you even did a whole um, podcast just about the, the night fort and what it probably was in the past. And you can kind of see that a lot with Castle Black here. It has a lot of towers, but it also has this like giant, giant library that's been abandoned by the wall, which really the fact that these books are just being left to rot and nobody gives a shit. Even with the Citadel, literally a, a an institution that only cares about learning. They have Maester Eamon there, and they're not sending people there. They're not sending people to go copy them. Like, surely they they could have asked Eamon at any time, like, how many books you got? He could have said, like, a few thousand. They would have been like, we're going to send you some apprentices. (laughs) They're going to, they're going to, we're going to take a look at that stuff because it sounds really interesting. Nobody cares about the Night's Watch. And just the idea that, but it's almost like, in a weird way, kind of like a northern citadel Hmm. where, there's no collection like this outside of old town basically and just to think about the amount of effort that went into collecting them and holding them in place and caring for them it makes me wonder before the wall existed because castle black and a lot of these castles are so so very old what were they before the others came like it appears that the night fort pre-exists probably the wall itself given the stories like whose home was that what was castle black for a long time did was it always did it always have that name (laughs) like you think about the castle old stones well it's called that because nobody remembers the name Do they just call it castle black because that's the color (laughs) it could be something as stupid as that what did it used to be maybe the maybe the citadel used to be there which i thought it's like an interesting like world building thing that you don't that's not really obvious but you go back you're like it is really weird that all these books are there there's not even like a rich guy collecting them it's just (laughs) a bunch of nerds um I also thought that it was super interesting that in this chapter, Eamon is so heavily present, but he's not there helping. Hmm. <laughs> we know we know that he basically has memorized every book or close to it, knows exactly where they are in every shelf, and it's left to Sam and John to go down and find the stuff. And it's I think it's kind of like I was talking about how Elsie's plan seems kind of suicidal. Eamon seems to know that it might be too and that his time might be up. So this could be like a kind of thing like I need Sam to start to learn to fly, basically. I'm sending him out with the Ravens, even though it's not super important. I'm sending him down to the library to find stuff because somebody needs to do this when I'm gone because he's very old at this point and they may not survive. And that's kind of a bummer, but it's one of those things that John is not really thinking about. But you Mm. can probably imagine the commanders thinking about it. What's the next generation going to be like, especially if Mance is coming here? Somebody needs to be able to show the new commander what's what. Oh, I also love the the comparison here between Castle Black itself and the White Tree Weirwood and how kind of similar they kind of are, where they're both giant and they're these hmm. massive repositories of knowledge, which we learn later. The children of the forest use the Weirwoods as. They hold the the knowledge of the world. Whether or not the show's version of that is right, that it's all in Bran's head, who knows? But it's we definitely know in the books that they hold like the souls of all their dead and all their memories in it. And it's interesting that as the children of the forest are being ignored and left to their own devices the same things happening here at castle black it's like the world is forgetting its own memory slowly mm-hmm. and it's even like the underground aspect the wormways which when we learn from bran later there's all these caves the children that's where the children are for sit and dream which is basically what sam's doing here he's sitting in the sitting in the dark dreaming
1: yeah that's great that's a great comparison it's yeah the, like that kind of hive mind aspect is something george clearly loves as many people have he pointed out that's you see that uh, crop up all, all across his works even even versions of it with the vampires and fever dream and that's like kind of the, mm-hmm. most, the work of it that's most distant from that trope and it still kind of works its way in there
2: and uh, one last thing that I thought was really interesting it's it's basically like John is almost entering like a fantasy book himself through these chapters, hmm. where he had he had basically like a pretty normal life up to this point, and all of a sudden he walks out of the Wormways, and there's a comet overhead, and the wall's shining, and there's a magical direwolf and magical raven looking at him. He's like, "I'm going beyond the wall to meet the old gods," and it's kind of like he's like jumped into somebody else's story for a little bit from this point on. He's like gone into another dimension, another world almost, and it's kind of it's very much a thing that I know that George loves doing he loves thinking about these kind of it's not explicitly a dream quest but it's like almost like he's living one of bran's dreams sort of
1: it's very liminal and feels kind of unreal like when sam thinks to himself after he gets back to castle black and is resisting telling john what happened to bran because he promised he's he's not dead john he's going beyond the wall through the black gate with his mysterious ranger protector on an elk it sounds ridiculous even (laughs) as i'm saying it to myself and yeah there is that That sense of a border between reality and fairy tale that I think does come through really strongly in these chapters. I think it's also just a great reintroduction of John himself to match that of Bran last week. Mm. As you were saying, Matt, you can sense George trying to re-cement John in the reader's mind. All in black, he was a shadow among shadows. Dark of hair, long of face, gray of eye. Black moleskin gloves covered his hands. The right because it was burned. The left because a man felt half a fool wearing only one glove. (laughs) Just a terrific, perfect little introduction. A shadow among shadows, given a clash of kings as a whole. That's probably not a significant choice of imagery at all. That won't, that won't crop up <laughs> later, in the least. So, John and Sam kind of emerge from this, like, liminal book space, little hive mind that they were in. They have a John has a conversation with Donald Noy that we will get into towards the end of the episode. A very significant conversation we want to de- deal with on its, on its own. And then he... Talks to Lord Commander J.R. Mormont, and I love that he is reintroduced bellowing that he is not too old to lead the ranging, and anyone who thinks otherwise can kiss his bear-sized ass. Thank you very much. Because that just perp- it's, like that, it's like that
2: Twitter thing where it's like nobody, and then and then Lord Commander <laughs> Mormont's like, "I'm not too old." Exactly.
1: That's that's the sentiment you're getting because. I mean, putting st- strategy and tactics aside for a moment, I know Jeff's going to frown at that concept, but even putting aside what what Mormont is doing as a commander, I think his great ranging is being set up to fail just by clearly he wants to go out in a blaze of glory here, just the way he's talking and conceiving about it. Like, he says he hates being cousined, you know, flattered and lied to, but nor does he deal particularly well with the truth. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, he's, he's smarter than the likes of Thor and Smallwood. He's also kinder-hearted than the likes of Thor and Smallwood, and that matters, but... Ultimately, like a lot of Jon's mentors, he represents a worldview that Jon has to work past as his successor. We see all of all of Mormont's blind spots and shortcomings brought up throughout this Great Ranging until he dies. Every step along the way, he's brought up against what you're both talking about, the decline of the Night's Watch. And even as he acknowledges that, like Jeff said, he was talking to Tyrion about how bad things have gotten he still can't really face the consequences he can't quite put the math together because the answer is just really dreadful and devastating to him and he can't face it until literally he dies for it i mean like yeah he, he blames sam for the maps being old as if it's sam's fault that the intellectual and strategic resources of the watch have been in disrepair for a long long time sam just got here and he's not even in charge of this stuff and yet he's getting blamed and of course what what Mormont is really expressing here is insecurity, not about how old the maps are, it's about how old he is. <laughs> that's why he has that line when he's laying out the Targ family tree. No, I still hadn't been born, although John didn't say anything about that. <laughs> but that's what Mormont's feeling. At some level, the old bear feels he is too old, and he's reacting to that as so many people do when they start feeling old. They play-act someone in their prime and force everyone else in their environment to play along. So long before the mutiny, I think you can sense how uneasy everyone is about... Playing along. You get that half-joke that the comet is there to light Mormont's fool way into the haunted forest. And people are are wondering, is there a real benefit to what what we're doing? You have this instinctive fear and revulsion of going beyond the wall, and is Mormont providing enough of a counter to that? I don't think he is. On a more sympathetic level, the Lord Commander is, of course, trying to pass on what he knows before it's too late. That's why both he and Donald Noe are testing John via these parables. Of the questions of these other families and how they're going to reflect on you and your family. The Baratheon and Targaryen backstories are being reframed as cautionary tales for John. And his vows are being tested not in the context of his own story, but in Rob's. That's George kind of expanding outward, as, as Jeff was saying about tying John into the War of Five Kings. They're, they're perfect contrast. They will garb your brother Rob in silk, satins, and velvets of a hundred different colors while you live and die in black ringmail. He will wed some beautiful princess and father sons on her. You'll have no wife, nor will you ever hold a child of your own blood in your arms. Rob will rule, you will serve. Men will call you a crow, him they'll call your grace. Singers will praise every little thing he does, while your greatest deeds all go unsung. Tell me that none of this troubles you, John. (laughs) And I'll name you a liar and know I have the truth of it. So the question is kind of ramped up from book one. It's now it's not just what kind of man are you in the abstract, it's what kind of man are you specifically in a realm at war? Which, which both connects John to the larger questions of A Clash of Kings and sets up his evolving relationship to the war between the Watch and the Wildlings that his later chapters in the book will focus on. And I love John's response to, to the Elsie that ends his first chapter in the book. He, he doesn't pretend that he isn't troubled. He says, I am troubled, but I'm sticking to my vows anyway. I'm not going to break and run. That's him doing the, the classic hero thing, the thing you're <laughs> supposed to do to be a worthy protagonist, not pr- pretend you don't have a shadow on your soul but acknowledge it and bring it to the surface and be prepared to deal with it. I think that's that's the key to not only being a good hero, but it's the key to why good hero stories tend to resonate because it's that's part of psychological maturation and, and making, making of yourself the best person you can be. And I think we see John prepared to do that here, which is good. Agreed.
2: Yeah, very much so. Um, one thing I thought that was really interesting about this, and Jeff, this actually came from me reading the doc uh, before I read the chapter and I went back to it. And it was the idea that Lord Commander Mormont is telling John that at some point he may usurp Rob's crown, and what that means about what he probably thinks the war of the Three Kings at this point will be. Hmm. Because, especially when you compare this with the the story of how Egg, Egg the Unlikely came to the throne, that's basically a story of how the last person anyone ever thought came to the throne. He was so far down the succession, and then you look at oh, look, your brother is going to be king. He's going to war. A lot of your family's probably going to die in this um, because Lord Commander Mormont saw the Robert's Rebellion. Entire families were wiped out. John might be the last one left, or it might be like him and Rickon. Hmm. And he's sort of telling, he's like preparing him being like, when there's nobody left, when everybody's pushing you forward to be the Lord of Winterfell and they need somebody to sit in that seat, after the war is done and your brother probably loses, are you gonna desert that at that point? Mm. And I think that's a really insightful point that George is layering in here, where he's connecting Eamon's story with John's in a in a very um, a very satisfying way. It's like it just seems like Targaryen history. Who cares? Well no, it's important for right now when you connect John and Egg as characters. Like, and whoa, John's name's Egg too. <gasps> oh my god
1: it's, it's like they're, George is making a sword, and he's got to layer in all these different kinds of metal into John's story, and he's doing that now. And may, it might seem a little kind of clunky and obvious that that's kind of all he's doing in these chapters instead of pushing the plot forward, but it is really valuable stuff. And I think it's important to establishing John as yeah, a, a distinctive character in his own right.
0: I, I do wonder like, where George is at, whether he thinks— how, how he imagines that John's going to take the crown itself, because I think he actually has the idea pretty early on that John will be king in the north, or at least be tempted by mm-hmm. it, right? That is something that is very clear, from the get-go that, you know, John is going to have some sort of royal question, so to speak. Uh, I, I do think that there is a bit of guarding that George integrates with Rob's will. I don't think that was originally part of the equation until George is like, how do I get John to be the Iron? <laughs> oh, wait, yeah, here we go. We're going to have Rob's going to write a will right before the Red Wedding, like literally like two chapters before the Red Wedding itself kicks off. And that's going to be the way that John's going to be able to gain like Northern support. because I mean, I think it's. It's hard. Like, it's one of these things that people are, like, very curious about when it comes to characters like how Bran is going to potentially become King of Westeros, which I know that we've had some uh, some argumentation about, some debate mm-hmm. that we can have at, at some sort of later juncture. But I, I think, like, there's... George has yet to put as well of a reasonable pathway for Bran to become king of Westeros, that he had, as opposed to John becoming king in the North. So you do kind of wonder whether like sort of the story was set up immediately to be like, okay, this is where John's arc is going to go. That we have Amon's story backstory and backstory being coming on here, how he was offered the crown how, like, he ended up rejecting the crown that ends up playing a big part in the backstory and then will play a part in the future mm-hmm. of the story going forward. Which, of course, we'll talk about towards the end of this podcast itself. Yeah,
2: yeah definitely. Uh, one thing that I thought was really interesting, just because it's hashtag on brand for me, hashtag on brand, <laughs> I, bas- I basically recognize Thorin Smallwood as Waymar back to Life. <laughs> They're basically the same pompous dick southerner <laughs> knight that's being a total asshole to everybody and thinking... Like, he. we see him demanding to be first ranger and we know waymar Mm. went on his ranging because he demanded to go and also demanded to be put in command they even wear like similar clothing he even loots uh the uh jeremy riker's clothes so that he looks even cooler which waymar being the third son of jan royce is kind of a similar idea it's someone dressed very well being a pompous dick that thinks well above what the their commanders think but in this case because he's a small wood and he's not a Royce. Uh, Mormont gets his revenge and says you can go away like I, I don't have any reason to be nice to you your family's nothing your dad's not Jan Royce keep walking Thorn. but it's interesting that he brought back that character that he really wanted to show uh, with Alistair Thorne gone too but a, a highborn jerk as a sort of and it's kind of interesting you can see him almost as how everyone else sees Jon hmm.
1: that's a great point I think so much of Jon's storyline in A Dance with Dragons is the struggle to understand how people see him and what he can do about <laughs> that and what he can't. That's something that comes up with a lot of leaders in the series, of course. And yeah, Smallwood, it's interesting that George always kind of comes up with a lot of different uh, Night's Watch characters to fulfill kind of the same archetype. Like, you know, the the, the Cotter Pike versus Dennis Malister argument at the end of A Storm of Swords kind of has some embodiments of what's what's going on here. And you can tell George wants these kind of clearly defined tensions within the night's watch in park because, of course he's leading to the mutiny against mormont but also it just suits his needs with john's characters that the the night's watch is never just this uh, unified block he always needs them to be mm. kind of contending with each other and unable to unite properly
0: yeah excellent points agreed amen brothers uh, gotta <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> gotta love
2: waymar coming back from the dead to be a jerk and I, you, I really gotta think like every time that john goes into lord commander mormont's like uh quarters mm. and he comes out with a sword and like the people outside the door can probably hear the conversation and they're probably like nobody's supposed to talk to lord commander like that but of course lord snow gets to and john has the exact same reaction to small that he's like who does he think he is he's just some jerk and it's like yeah everyone thinks that's what you're doing John. <laughs> by the way but lord commander Mormont likes you better so he lets you get away with it um I also, uh, I wanted to talk about briefly, what do you think Lord Commander Mormont's plan with this great ranging was? Because I really think it's a suicide run and I think it's a suicide run, but with a purpose, because he knows he cannot beat Mance, he knows he cannot beat the Whites, but, like, I think he's, like, trying to make a headline almost, where it's like, a letter from the from the North is going to make it to King's Landing where, like, half the rangers were wiped out in one night. Send aid or else the wall is going to fall. It's like, maybe that's the only thing he thinks he can do at this point because he clearly can't win militarily. I, I don't know. That, that was just something I came across when I was reading it. I don't know what you guys think.
0: It's hard to... So, the... And Stephen Atwell's made this point again. We are basically the Stephen Atwell tribute podcast at this point, <laughs> but but he's he said that it's it's essentially mission creep, right? This is like George's version of Viet, of the Vietnam War for the Night's Watch, right? That they go north of the Wall specifically to rescue Benjen Stark and bring him south of the Wall, right? That's the original plan. Yeah, but he's, everyone knows he's dead. It makes
1: some sense. Well, they... Mor- Mormont does, doesn't Mormont say Benjamin can find us easier than we can find him? Yeah. Like we're making a lot of noise and, you know, we're lighting up our torches mm-hmm. and moving through the wild so maybe he can come find us. I think that's the closest we get to what Mormont's actual original plan is. And then once, we, once he finds out Mance is gathering everyone together in the Frostfangs, then he seems to completely change tack. That's just what I, the sense I got off it.
0: Right. And then he's the Mormon's all like, we're going to like do this mounted attack against Mance Raider and his 100,000 guys. And the fact that we have, we're on horses means that we're going to prevail, which, you know, sounds crazy if you think about it. But then again, Stannis Baratheon comes north with 1,500 guys on horseback and defeats Mance Raider in full combat, right? I mean, Mance Raider is already a raid for battle against the Knights Watch. So it's not totally foolhardy, although it is again the numbers are, are really not on on you know Elsie Mormon's mm-hmm. side here but uh, but again this speaks to the mission creep right I mean the, the one thing you know from from as a former and current military person the one thing I have to say about the, all of this of course is that Elsie uh, Mormon is abandoning the the biggest advantage that he has the biggest force multiplier which is the fucking wall man like he's north of the wall. Yeah. And he's abandoning that in favor of a mounted attack against Mance Rayder. What's actually going to defend the wall is the wall itself, right? The wall defends mm. itself is what the point is going to be brought up specifically in a storm of swords. So I, I think it's foolhardy. I am interested in the suicide mission idea. I, I don't I don't know if it's a suicide mission per se. I, I do think it's more of mission creep. It's more like that they're like, okay, we're going to go find Venture Stark. Okay, now the Wildlings are mass. We're going to go attack them. Okay, now we all have to run away because the Wildlings didn't attack us. <laughs> the others, the fucking others attacked us. So I think it's all sorts of things going on at the same time.
1: I think if it's a suicide mission, I don't think it's at a conscious level. I think that might be what hmm. he's doing under the surface at a level he doesn't even realize. But... I think he... In his conscious mind, what he's telling himself, I think he does have a mission. It's just the fact that it keeps changing is what makes me think there is no real real plan deep, deep down. And he... I mean, this just might be a situation where he just honestly doesn't know what to do. So this is what he's going to do. This seems like the least yeah. bad option. This seems like everything his training and just class thinks is you're supposed to do. And he... Jeff's completely right that actually the smart move is to hunker down on the wall and hope you get support, but that's not what heroes do. That's not what <laughs> great lord commanders do. That's not what figure of songs and legend do. They go out and fight, even if that's objectively not the smart move. And I think that that in part might be what's what's happening with Mormont, is he really he really wants a legacy better than the likes of Thor and Smallwood. And that's in part why he seizes so much onto John. But... Hmm. So we go beyond the wall. We get to this village of White Tree. Here we are, back at the darkness at the edge of town, beyond the world, as John says, where we met the others and the whites in Book One. And now no one's here and nothing happens. And <laughs> I, I can and I I kinda do wish it was a little more urgent, but I do think George is making an important point about what John's task really is gonna be beyond the wall, that he's here to cross borders rather than enforce them. That he's here not really to engage in daring deeds, because that's what Waymar Royce wanted to do, and look how that ended. He's here to learn about the wildlings. That ultimately, John's story beyond the wall is not one of, you know, heroic conquest. It's one of assimilation and one of cultural contact. That ends up being the focus. And you do get the beginning of that process here in White Tree, although more than anything, it's to take stock of what they don't know. As, you know, the old air says, would well, that bones could talk? This fellow could tell us much. How he died, who burned him, and why, where the wildlings have gone. And yeah, it is like, as you were saying, Jeff, like it's obvious why. He should really <laughs> just be aware of that by now, but. Where the wildlings have gone is the key setup because now we get this mm-hmm. mystery element. Where is everybody? Where are all the wildlings? What are they up to? And that, that en- ends up being a thread we carry forward in later John chapters. And there's also just like some great uneasy atmosphere surrounding that just monstrous tree. This is this horrifying huge, like everything else about this village is really small, right? Small village, small houses, not much, but this tree is massive. So it's like you've gotten this inversion of how things are in the South with these huge castles and like moderately sized weirwoods. And so, you know, my, my only regret about doing these two chapters together is that George does this great setup in early in A Clash of Kings where we get three empty settlements in a row. Danny 1 with a vase to Loro, then John 2 in White Tree, then Arya 4 at the unnamed village by the God's Eye. So, you know, that, that structure is nice, but I'll never pass up a creepy abandoned village even in isolation. So if, if John 2 works in any way for me, I think it's, it's mostly atmospheric and, like, you know, gets the hackles raised on the back of my neck and just gets, gets me worried and paranoid about what comes next.
2: In John one, John really thinks about. He really looks down on the faith of the seven. There's a scene where they're mm. singing in their chapel, and he's like, mm, "They're singing. My old gods are hardcore and metal. <laughs> and they're awesome, and so am I." And, and for him, the weirwoods he thinks about are is the one Ned Stark sat beneath, where it has like that sad, mournful look, where it looks into the water, and it's like, it's not scary for him. It's it's home. It's mm. it's a it's a safe place. It's a place where he probably went to go find Ned. Where when he was feeling scared or something like that, and then he gets to this one, and this one (laughs) is huge. It's his like it's his uh, not in Kansas anymore (laughs) moment kind of thing. It's terrifying. Not only is it huge, it has a gaping mouth with bones inside of it and ashes, and it's like you can just sort of see John going like, "Wait, what are the old gods about again?" (laughs) Because like this isn't what I know. This isn't the Winterfell heart tree, and it's really part of the Eldritch Horror kind of thing I was talking about early on where this is like the first time where it's like something that was comforting for him is now pretty scary and overwhelming for him to even deal with where he doesn't he also takes it personally a little bit where thorns like i'm gonna take an axe to this thing but he's still kind of in awe of the tree and like how big it is and like the features of it that he doesn't even like shoot him an angry glance or like those are my gods like you imagine he would do at some point later he's just in awe of what he's seeing hmm. and especially when you compare that to the fact that he's gone to four villages and saw nothing and they walk into this village and he's like okay okay all <laughs> right so i have to reevaluate some things right now and he he really does see them as holy he uh, there's a there's a weird moment where he comments on what the night's watch rangers are doing underneath the uh the shadow of the tree and he notes like the light going through the the leaves and they're like oh they're standing around like pissing and scratching themselves and he's like mm, this is my holy place guys <laughs> can you like can you not do that? It's a similar thing to what he was doing to the the grove when he swore his vows. But it's he's he's kind of backing off it a little bit. He's not really again. He's not shooting anyone glares. He's like, what have I gotten myself into? He thought he was just on a fun journey through nature. Like Sam kind of things is going on. He's like this. Maybe the things Sam wrote or read in those books could be real. And I don't know what I'm getting into. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's that complete yeah, inversion of what was once comfortable is now looks like it's going to devour you whole and, yeah, it's really interesting that little bit with Thorne's Smallwood where he, sends, he says he understands why the First Men would have taken an axe to it. It's like suddenly we're flashed back to the origin of all these problems, and we're getting back to that <laughs> first decision being made. And you have the contrast, but you have one man, John, who looks at these things in awe. I mean, also fear, but also just kind of awe and reverence versus Thorn, who just wants to cut it down and get it out of his way. And, yeah, the, the Night's Watchman scratching and pissing under its branches. It reminds me of what the, the Queen's Men, Stannis' Queen's Men, say about the old gods when they get north. What kind of god allows himself to be pissed on by dogs? And part of me is like, yeah, of course, you should be respectful of holy sites, etc. But part of me also thinks like, you know, you should have the kind of god you can piss on, metaphorically speaking. You should have the kind of king you can talk back to. You shouldn't have these authority figures that are just so removed from you that you have to, you know, be insanely respectful and walk on eggshells at all times and you can't even be a human being around them. Like, part of the appeal of the old god's faith is that they don't have the named gods and they don't have the the huge infrastructure built around them, and there's a sense of it being less corrupt, which I think is true, but that doesn't mean it's it's doesn't have just as much a blood-soaked history as, as the other religions. And, and Matt, you've always done a great job talking about that, and I do think, yeah, you're right. You see a strong hint of it in this chapter, for sure.
2: One thing that I thought was really interesting was John has this idea that the the Weirwoods are a part of Winterfell, that they're a part of the Starks, that they're mm-hmm. they are one and the same because of the mm-hmm. way that it's positioned. You know, it's in the Godswood, which is surrounded by a wall. It's within, you know, the the protection of the Starks. You look at this village though, White Tree Village is four tiny shacks with like piles of crap in the corner, and they have like hides over the windows and they have sod for roofs, but it's the biggest weirwood he's ever seen. And it's sort of in his world he thinks of the old gods as a thing that the first men own and in this moment he's saying oh no this one's much bigger and nobody cares for it (laughs) it's like this thing's way more powerful than the people around it it's it's grown out of control and it's it's very much i think you see later on him trying to struggle with the fact that the old gods and the others and all these big things are beyond
0: what even what he understands as cool and tough as john is that's interesting. Yeah, I, I think, you know, last week we did Bran 1, right? Or if you guys are just listening to it now, if you guys are watching the live stream. And, and Bran has this this dream where he says the werewolves are calling him, the werewolves that are not in the godswood of Winterfell itself. So it's, it's intended, like we said last week, to talk about the true power of the true north, right? Which is the north beyond the wall and the power of the old gods. I think that's an interesting kind of statement about magic and about what is uh, is going on at Bran's arc, but it's also going on in John's arc, too. It's also interesting, too, that Thorne Smallwood talks about putting an axe to this great werewood tree, and this is something that's going to feature very prominently in Storm of Swords John 11, which her friends at the Girls Gone Canon podcast recently did with Scad from our other Friends, the Devil's Fingers podcast, which is an excellent episode, which is all about like, John, you only need to cut down the Werewood trees, swear to the Rallor and to Stannis, and you can be Rise as John Stark, Lord of Winterfell. I, I, here, like, John's not like being like, oh, we cannot do this. These are my, where my old gods dwell. Instead, it's where, <laughs> it's where, uh, it's a place of reverence, but it's also a place of fear for for John. Like John's, like, well, we shouldn't cut this down because we don't have time right now. But later, it becomes much more reverent for John. I do wonder whether his time north of the wall and his experience with weirwoods ends up being, um, ends up being something that drives him to later reject Stannis' offer to for Winterfell because he starts to see the power of. His religion, like we like we talked about, John's not super religious. Like he talks about having a faith in the old gods, but he out and out does not really seem in. To groove with organized religion, which is, puts him at a great place, because the, the faith of the old gods is not an organized religion. So, that's something that's interesting I think for John's arc, and I think it kind of parallels and intersects with Bran's arc too, and that they're, all, they're both going north of the wall, they're both going to have experiences where it was, and they're both going to meet the old gods, whether they're the White Walkers or the Children of the Forest, maybe both.
1: Absolutely, but you know, the most important character in these chapters might not actually be John, or Lord Commander Mormont, <laughs> Or Maester Aemon. I think the most, the most enduring part of this chunk of John's story is the introduction of the glorious Ed Talat. <laughs> Dollarus Ed, the funniest character in the Song of Ice and Fire, this side of Stannis. And when I say John has the strongest supporting cast of the central POVs, as I've said a couple times on the podcast before, Dollarus Ed is high on the list of reasons why. As many people have noted, he's basically Eeyore as a Shakespearean fool. He's just wonderfully gloomy and has just this, these perfect puncturing uh, things to say that just uh, sum up everything that's going on in a way that no other character would. But what I also love about him is that he's he's more than just a trope. Like, when push comes to shove, he really is one of the finest of the Night's Watchmen. Mm-hmm. During that disastrous retreat to the Wall in the Storm of Swords when you got apocalypse and mutiny on every side of you, there's never a question of whose side he's on and who he's trying to help. Same during Jon's tumultuous time as Lord Commander when people are taking a lot of different sides for a lot of different reasons. Ed is as, as secure and loyal as they come. So I like that for all his you know gloomy refrains about the general dinginess of life like there's that's the from edith wharton's house of mirth the main <laughs> character lily bart which she's trying to describe like the horror of becoming poor and losing her social status she always described it as dinginess like that's the worst possible <laughs> thing to be and that's kind of what ed talks about It's not just that everything is horrible but everything is kind <clears> of <throat> dingy and broken despite that he's not a cynic like he's like yorn in that way he really does care deeply about his 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 friends mm-hmm. and his brothers He's, you know, I think he's he's got the he's got the true heart beneath all that those jokes.
0: Yeah, it's it's great, and the funny thing is too. Like, we actually have the backstory for why Dollars Ed joined the Night's Watch, hmm. and it, it all speaks to Dollars Ed and kind of that, as as you said it really well, refrains about the gen, the general dinginess of life. So, in a two thousand one, so spake Martin. George R. R. Martin was asked a question, just just one question here. Why did he, that is, Dollars Ed, take the black? And George R. R. Martin responded. Joran, remember him, Emma just referenced him so you should, told him girls couldn't resist a fellow in a uniform. Yorin, though, well, he left out that part about the celibacy. So we have Dullerous Ed being kind of tricked into joining the Night's Watch. But yet, despite being tricked into the, joining the Night's Watch, he's the most solid guy that the, that Mormont has north of the Wall, right? All these other great rangers, whether it's going to be Thorin Smallwood, whether it's going to be Otho... not Otho Yarick, whether it's going to be other folks there who are scouting for him, leading the rear guard, all these different things, they're all going to die, desert, leave Mormont, get, get the fuck out of Dodge... But not Ed. Ed's gonna stay there. He was tricked into joining the Night's Watch, and yet he's still staying strong. He's still there at the end by the end of a dance of dragon, still standing strong for John, even though he's not at Castle Black itself.
1: He's the one who puts forward John for Lord Commander, right? Or at least claims he did.
0: Yes, it's it's a poor thing to do for a brother, but you know
1: <laughs> like he <Right>. like <laughs> Exactly. He's 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 like masking his compliments <clears throat> and his sincerity in these cynical jokes but the sincerity still comes through like you know you have that line it's a terrible thing to find a brother dead and then he goes on to talk like about drinking the wine he found the 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 person (laughs) in but that core line it's a terrible thing to find a brother dead is what he really believes like that's 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 his soft heart and he buries it beneath jokes to express that the gods don't care if you're sincere that the world doesn't care if you're sincere and will always twist your designs around on you so you you meet fate armed in irony not because it'll protect you necessarily but so that not even death can come as a surprise. I think that's kind of what dollar said is doing by always talking like this. He's preparing himself to die and trying not to be afraid of it. This is his way. <laughs> and he gets this, this gem of a line here about how tedious the dead would be. Like Mormont wants to talk to the dead, but they just be annoying and complaining about the size of their gravestones and why does he get more worms than I do? And that's that's just great. not only because it demystifies the zombies that you know they're gonna run up against. It also just calls into question the entire idea of venerating the dead and all the heritage and all the history that goes with doing so. Why are we elevating these people up above the rest of us? They were petty assholes in their time just like we are. Why is it exactly that the memory of Aerys Targaryen or Elia Martell or even Ned Stark should rule the fates of the living? When we do that, are we imprisoning ourselves with them in their tombs? Should we not just try to move forward from them? And it's a classic headline in that it's both comforting and distressing at the same time like it's, it's comforting because it's grounded it's like it's an image of the afterlife which doesn't involve eating brains or burning in a lake of fire or just complaining that's kind of comforting but it's also distressing and it suggests we'll never rise above that that we will be petty assholes for eternity and never never find a higher cause and that's just i think that's a very distinct like that's the dolorous ed tone captured perfectly
0: right and i love the idea too that uh, you know, in, in this chapter two, it's it's like like are the dead actually any better than us? Like what's what why would they not be liars and just kind of malcontents the same <laughs> that we are in, in real life? Like what's going to distinguish them? The fact that they're dead, like are people like their traits are going to be retained. And, and I think that's interesting, uh, especially in a story where the dead do kind of rise to life on occasion from time to time or rise to undead life, whatever it's going to be.
1: Yeah, don't have rose-colored glasses, I think, is his overall, is what he's trying to get across in his uniquely Dolorous Ed way. For me, I think, like, the best Dolorous Ed line will always be what he says at the Fist of the First Men. Like, Sam is wandering just through, like, the worst shit imaginable, <laughs> just this utter apocalypse all around him and just chaos. And then in the middle of it, he sees Ed, just like a little Warhammer figurine, just sitting on his horse with his little banner. And Ed just looks at him and goes, Sam... Would you wake me, please? I'm having this <laughs> terrible nightmare. Which is great, because on one level, it completely undercuts everything that's happening by turning it into a joke. On the other hand, it expresses how terrible it is, because that's all, that's all Ed can think to say. Mm-hmm. That's the only joke he can make now, is please let this not be real. Please. And it's ugh, it's, just, it's just so good. So, you know, this, Ed is not exactly a super plot-relevant character, but he is a fan favorite for a reason, and we're, gonna, we're always going to take note of it every time he pops up.
2: Definitely the most ground- down-to-earth, person I'd say in the night's mm-hmm. watch where everyone else is fighting like their weird little political battles or John's worrying about like what he's going to do with rob or if if he's going to usurp Lord Commander mormon's thinking about his legacy Sam's worried about books and Ed's like it's actually a really good line from the uh the west wing this is going to be a weird <laughs> reference but th- there's a there's a moment when CJ Craig is watching walking with Josh and they're in the middle of I think they just found out that Jed Bartlett has MS and um, she just starts laughing he's like what's funny like this is a very serious thing she's like you guys don't understand you're you're like um, Butch Cassie and the Sundance kid like trying to figure out what you're gonna do once you like land in the water and you swim away it's like the fall is gonna kill you and that's kind of what Ed's doing here he's like we're all screwed <laughs> this entire time like our life sucks and he's kind of like kind of cutting through almost like the fantasy um, like atmosphere of mm-hmm. it in order to be like somebody in this world have to not think they're like going to be a hero of this story and it's ed and he's
0: like yeah this sucks man right exactly and i think that's that's what matt's talking about here too is like the fantasy element mm-hmm. there is like oh well of course he he, he made he, he he made it out alive or i was like no no he actually was killed i remember now it's like the wildling axe had killed him before he fell off the wall so it's like grounding this fantasy story in a very realistic tone which i think is what some of george's strength are what what one of George's strengths is, anyways? So I think that about takes us to our foreshadowing groundwork portion of this podcast itself. Hope you guys have enjoyed our discussion. I thought it was a lot of fun. Uh, the first thing we want to talk about, and I'm I'm actually going to say just one line. I'm going to just turn it right immediately over to Matt here, which is that <laughs> we have this line from Elsie Mormont where he's talking about that amon passes the throne onto Aegon, and does that foreshadow John passing the throne onto Brandon Stark?
2: he is george is incredibly clever with what he's doing right here because he's setting up a very realistic possibility like i was describing earlier where it's like most of the starks will probably die in this war civil wars rarely go well for the family that's trying it and he's setting you up being like oh will john be like the lord or like the king of winterfell and it's like he's like comparing them like are you prepared to like usurp Sansa are you are you prepared to usurp Bran if that's the only one left at the end of this war and he gets you thinking about that and you're kind of turning it over in your head comparing it with uh with Aemon but then it's like oh no by the way it's actually Danny and Fagon that this is going (laughs) to happen to the the secret Targaryen plot is going to come up and it's not incidental that he's talking about Targaryens in this example it's not incidental that that a that a civil war will kill most of his family, and John's going to have to make hard choices, as and especially with the the idea earlier with the um the family he chooses versus the family he has. Danny is his family, and is he is he going to choose to make her family in the Targaryen way? Which yeah, a little bit, but um, but like, is he? Are they going to unite, or is he going to see her as a rival? And that, and especially with Aemon's choice, where he there's a lot that went into his choice that's um below the surface which i'll talk about in a little bit but the the one that mormont says is basically that he thought that egg was the better ruler that he was more interested that he would be better suited to the throne than Eamon because he's a book nerd there's the line where he's like he was slow at swinging his sword which is kind of like a nonsense thing it doesn't (laughs) anyway but it's basically saying who's who's the right person to rule when you when it's your choice when it's john's choice and right now the choice is rob but down in the line it's it's becoming increasingly clear that no it's going to be john whose choice will matter with who rules the seven kingdoms Mm -hmm. will be danny will be him surprise it's bran (laughs) according to uh, according to the show which they said they got that from george so but even still, the idea that you should be comparing Eamon's life and his family to John's, I don't think is a very common one, but it's one that makes a lot of sense. Especially like this is something I came across. I hadn't really thought about it. There's the exact same number of kids in the Stark family as there are in Eamon's family. Hmm. There's four sons and two daughters. Uh, because everyone forgets the daughters. There's two there's two That's sisters.
1: True yeah
2: two sisters four sons it works out almost exactly the same and it's not really something you would think about especially because it's planted so early Mm -hmm. on where it's like this nonsense thing it goes away even like you you compared uh makar to stannis but he's very much a parallel for ned as well as they are similar characters and actually even thinking about this um make makar's wife was diana dane And Ned Stark's crush was Ashara Dane. It's almost like Mm -hmm. what would have happened if Ned had married Ashara, basically, and not ended up maybe in the neck with some kind of frog eater (laughs) or something like that. Like somebody in the chat thinks, I'm looking at you. (laughs) Um... But I, I think it's I think it's really interesting, especially when you start looking at, at prophecy and how it works out for characters, where it really doesn't. A, a lot of it really does come down to choice. Like Stannis does not have to believe Melisandre. Mm-hmm. Danny does not have to believe the the Red Temple when they tell her that she's a Zora high. It, it's really them accepting that into their heart and making it a part of their life. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a very, very important part. And it ends up crushing people that accept it. But John doesn't know any of this. And he has he hasn't grown up with the expectations that he will be a king. He hasn't grown up with the expectations that he'll even be a lord, like the the leader of his house. Hmm. So it kind of puts him in a unique situation that most of the claimants or would-be saviors are, where they all know it. <laughs> and the especially with Aim when you compare it back to him the story about aegon the unlikely aemon was also extremely unlikely Hmm. he had no expectation he'd ever be on the throne and he actually like john he turned down power at every turn there was the um wanted to put him on the um the small council as the grand maester he said no he wanted to put him on the small council anyway just as like his personal maester said no again and went off with his brother daron which is a whole different story that i'll I'll get to a little bit (laughs) but (laughs) i'll get to a little bit about why that's important And like the magical side, but it's, it's very, very similar in terms of where their life is going. It's almost like old John meeting young John and like telling him what his life was like and how he ended up on the wall and how he made choices that were better for him and for the realm Hmm. rather than seeking power, which is really what Eamon's story and his parable was about to him.
1: That's a great point. Like the the same way, like Stannis meeting John is like a cautionary tale. Like, here's what you could be, John, if you let your desire to be Lord of Winterfell consume you whole and become your your driving force. And Aemon is the more oh, and the whole positive side that I think we're going to see John following. But I loved I loved that framing of John not as the end game king himself necessarily, but as the one who makes the choice, on the one whose who's shoulders is lane and then kind of Bran. ...takes things from there beyond Endgame into kind of an uncertain future. I think that that strikes me as, as perfect not only for those two characters... ...but, as you say, in terms of their comparisons to the Targaryen analogues. I think that's really good. One la- more, a little bit of foreshadowing here is, is uh, Mormont's line. I've seen the dead walk. I've not seen any giant bears which yeah. he will and I, I just love you can tell how excited George is to get to one of his best horror images the bear on the fist of the first man whenever he came up with that I'm betting he was going oh this is gonna be good I'm gonna make it so <laughs> scary and and over the top and he's just he's just putting it in here and even beyond foreshadowing I feel like this is just he's too excited and he, wants, he wants to he just can't resist pu- putting a little reference into it there
0: yeah, you do kind of wonder. Like, I I do think that this is definitely something that George planned to like be to show, of course, because of course when the oh, when the bear shows up, it's supposed to be like uh, Mormont. This is kind of like your your comeuppance right here. You have a giant fucking bear, the one that you didn't even know, you didn't even believe existed north of the wall, coming to attack you. Also, the symbol of your house too, also coming to attack you as well. Like maybe you made a mistake in coming north of the wall with this with the with the great ranging. But these are all topics for a storm of swords proper when we get to that event in the prologue as well as that event come uh, of samuel's first chapter in a storm of swords and see what counts that so that about wraps us up for our first shadowing groundwork portion of this episode to kind of take us into the more theory discussion or final portion of this podcast we did want to talk a little bit about that metaphor right about donald noise metaphor about robert being the true steel stannis being iron and Renly worth copper and the question is is the metaphorical metallurgy is it a yay or nay type question is robert the true steel is stannis the iron who's going to break is
1: Renly worth a damn and he's not <laughs> that, one's, that one's beyond reproach, apparently.
2: <laughs> oh, is, it, is this the price I pay for getting to talk about <laughs> Eamon for like 10 minutes yes, straight? Yes, it is. I have to now talk about this. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Well, it's,
1: it's, it's interesting stuff in terms of how George conceives of these characters in relation to each other. I mean, something we've talked about before about how it, feel, like it feels like Robert's legacy was kind of cut in two when he died and we got Renly and Stannis. these kind of like these two halves, the ghost and the shadow. And I think you can definitely see George playing with that idea here. I think there's an interesting contradiction between Robert being the true steel and him going Mm -hmm. to rust as soon as he has to do anything except fight. I mean, I think that gets up and I don't think, no, if Donald Noy really realizes he's kind of giving this away. I think that gets at the problem with a martially oriented cast being in charge that the best soldiers don't necessarily make the best Kings. Like Bran wanted to be a knight, but it looks like he's going to end up as King long after that dream is dead. So maybe George is suggesting that, people who love war and invest themselves in war can't necessarily rule the peace so I think that that's an example where maybe we're not supposed to take Donald Noy at face value but maybe despite that he's getting at some some important truths without even realizing it
0: I think you're right about that, I think like Robert as being the true steel. like I think it's interesting that, uh, okay so for, back up, first I think that it's interesting to, to get the perspective of Donald Noy because when was the last time he actually saw these guys right? I mean 17 years, right? Robert is 34, 35 at his death you know, he we from what we understand, Donald Noy leaves the Baratheon brothers' service after the Siege of Storm's End at two eighty three. After he loses his arm during the Siege of Storm's End, so it's been a good long while since Donald Noy has been acquainted with his uh, his his sons, I guess, so to speak. There's like a lot of people are claiming the Baratheon boys as their sons, right? From Crescent to Noy to I guess Stefan Baratheon, who apparently existed at one point in time. Like, there's, there's a lot of folks here who are thinking that 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 the Baratheon boys are their sons. I, th- I think. That's that's interesting. I think that perspective when we get beyond like whether these they don't always being correct or not. Does he actually know anything about like a character like Renly? I mean, I you assume he knows Robert and Stannis like a little bit better given that he, you know, the kids were like what, 18 and 19 years old during Robert's rebellion and that he was with Stannis at the siege of Storm's End. So is he actually being accurate here given the circumstances and the timeline that's and the time that's passed since he actually encountered these bro, these boys?
2: I have a quote for this. And I, th- I think it's also uh, important to, like you are talking about, how long it's been since he's seen them, but also who is Donald Noy as a person? What does he value? Mm-hmm. What are the things he cares about? Well, he's a blacksmith. He was a blacksmith for and, and a weaponsmith for Storm's End, and then he went and joined the Night's Watch. So he's basically spent all of his life ki- kind of around soldiers, and that's basically his perspective. Those are the things he really values. So when, when you consider the three of them and their relative strengths and weaknesses yeah robert is by far the best warrior he was made he was muscled like a maiden's fantasy like ned says which is a troubling thing that ned says about him and probably means some other things but anyway um it's he he's like six foot six he's basically a giant he swings his warhammer and kills everybody he's using donald Noyce's war warhammer too it's like there's probably a lot of pride he probably felt a lot of pride in robert's conquest up until like you know he started turning into a bad king But those are the things he really values. And there was a really good quote from uh, Game of Thrones, John 5. And I think it's interesting that George put this in, in another John chapter, for a comparison. And I believe this is uh, John's talking to Maester Aemon. And he says, this collar is supposed to remind a maester of the realm he serves. Isn't that so? Lords are gold and knights steel, but two links can't make a chain. Hmm. You also need silver and iron and lead tin and copper and bronze uh, copper and all the rest and those are farmers and smiths and merchants and the like a chain needs all sorts of metals a land needs all sorts of people and i think that's really what's getting at what donald is saying about uh about renly here where he says he's copper he is not a warrior king he will never be that is not who he is he's a very different kind of king he's like the difference between like um anis and Magor. But like much to a much like smaller extent, like Robert's not Magor, neither is Stannis. But it's like the difference between a martial person and a person that has much more a, a liberal arts degree, I guess would say, <laughs> rather than someone who joined the ROTC like Stannis and uh, and Robert and apparently Jeff. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> and I think I, I think that's important for taking into account, and especially when these 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 quotes comparing the metal are all in John's POV. So it, George is intending us to think about who's saying it and kind of you know it's like the almost the faith of the seven where you need all the seven you can't just have the warrior to have a balanced life which is sort of the idea behind the seven that's a good point
1: i mean it's true that renley hasn't had the opportunity to fight in a war like robert and Stannis, but i, I think uh, renley the liberal arts major is more the show like renley in the book is still a big <laughs> dude a martial dude mm-hmm. who trains and his internees sure. I mean, he's not—he's certainly not as tied to the warrior king model as as uh, Robert and Stannis. But the line I quoted from him earlier about "good soldiers don't make good kings." I don't think Book Renly would necessarily touch that because he still wants the image; he still wants to look like Robert, mm. even if he's not not super there. And yeah, I mean, I think you both make great points about that. We have to consider how long it's been since Donald Noy saw these people, and we have to consider that Donald Noy's not this neutral observer who has no values of his <laughs> own. He's bringing value judgments to the table. I, you know, it's worth noting. I think that. Donald's criticism of Renly lines up perfectly with what Elena says that he knew how to bathe and knew how to dress and knew how to smile and somehow he got the notion in his head that this made him fit to be king and she knew Renly the man very recently so that makes me think that Donald might have been onto something even if it's inadvertently but on the whole he is he's doing a lot of judging from surfaces and I think he is kind of accidentally getting at the truth and I think that gets... <laughs> I think that gets at how hard it is really to to evaluate public figures you know especially in like this pre-modern era where you're, you might never even see them and he's he's just kind of he's kind of working on reputation and that I think that comes to the fore when, when he talks about Stannis because I think he's both right and wrong about this I think as Jeff has pointed out very extensively and well Stannis does actually bend before breaking at certain points in the story I think they may re- I think they might represent hypocrisy as much as they do progress a lot of the time as he himself points out to Davos like yeah Isn't it funny that I learned how to forgive people right when I needed them, but I didn't learn how to forgive you for your smuggling? Isn't that kind of an awkward hypocrisy on my part? On the other hand, though, I think it's you know, like Matt was saying, got to consider what Donald Lloyd's life experiences are. So when he's talking about Stannis would break before he bent, what is he talking about? He's talking about the siege of Storm's End, right? He's not talking yeah. about Stannis making political concessions down the line. That's what he has in mind, the guy who would starve first. And maybe, this is a complete supposition on my part, but maybe he's specifically thinking about Davos's fingers, not the wonderful podcast, the literal fingers. Because as we've said before, Donald Lloyd was presumably there at the siege, at the conclusion when Stannis did that. So maybe he's thinking, geez, the dude who cut the fingers off, the guy who saved his life. Maybe he's a little too brittle. Maybe he doesn't have, you know, the Robert's Robert's finest attribute. I think is was his capacity to forgive and to bring people over onto his side who were previously fighting against him. And Stannis, as he says in Storm of Swords, just looked at that like it was magic and didn't know how you could even begin to conceive of doing that as a person. So, yeah, I think I think it's this is obviously a much discussed and much analyzed and much argued part of the text, and I, I think. What makes it work for me is it's, it's neither a, a complete fabrication on Donald Noy's part, nor is it the exact truth. I think he's, he's he's getting at something, but I think all three of these guys are slightly more complicated than what he's suggesting. And I think they also just have much more in common than what Donald is talking about. I think, you know, Stannis and Renly are opposites in so many ways, but as Tyrion says, the real reason they can't get along is because they're too much alike, is because they're so equally stubborn and both want the room to stop when they walk in and they can't deal with it being any other way. And they also kind of get that from Robert. So, I mean, one of the things I like about A Clash of Kings and A Song of Ice and Fire as a whole, it doesn't pretend it has the one answer to Varus' riddle. There isn't this one completely perfect way to conceive of power. In any way you look at it, you're always going to be incomplete. And Donald Noy's monologue feels like an example of that to me.
0: I think it's a fantastic point, point. I think, and I think Matt's point too about how all the medals are supposed to work together is a really good point as well. They all have value at, at some level, right? If you could put Robert... And Stannis and Renly all together as to one person. You got yourself basically exactly. the perfect king,
1: right? Like Matt was saying, all, all the colors together, all the, all the parts of the maester's chain. You need all of the metals and Renly's just the copper and Stannis is just this iron and Robert is just this part. And the tragedy, yeah, is that you can't forge them together into one chain, one realm, one god, one king, one realm, all that <laughs> nonsense. You, you can't quite get it done with any one of them. And yet they don't work well enough to get along because they're not the Starks. They're not they don't have that, that unity, that kind of that family pack mentality dragging through through all of us, they just don't have it.
2: I also find it interesting, since we were talking earlier about King Bran mm-hmm. and John's choice in the endgame, Donald Noy would probably hate that choice. So yeah. He would say, You made the wrong choice putting
1: Bran on the on the He Iron can't throne. even walk. <laughs> How is how going to yeah. be the proper warrior king of Westeros? I'm fairly exaggerating. He, I yeah. can make
2: him a sword. It'd be great. And it's like, well, no, that that's not his skill set. Mm-hmm. It's And there are quite a lot of people on Westeros that really do want warrior kings of old. They love Robert, despite his many, many faults. And there are things to not like about Renly. <gasps> I said it. As I said <laughs> it. There are things not to like about Renly. There are parts of his kingship that probably would have been pretty bad. As there are with everybody. Nobody's perfect. But, like... It, it it really does matter about what what kind of realm you think they were going to build and what their kingship was going to be like like even him saying like robert's the true steel robert bent over backwards for tywin lannister and littlefinger for like, for, fort, for and littlefinger for like 14 years and this is the guy that is like that he's the true steel he's the great guy well yeah has like Jeff said he hasn't seen him in a long time but also like that's a part of robert's character too and it's it's this is a very like you said, this is a very popular line, and it's a great one to discuss, but yeah, the, these are not like comprehensive looks at them. And even like I said, like George is presenting many different angles on yep. this whole metal-as-a-ruler-king-society sort of uh, trope he's using throughout the book. I
1: think it, more than anything else, it might be most reflective of their end games. that it's about Robert ultimately going to rust, and Renly ultimately isn't worth that much, and Stannis ultimately will break, despite bending several times along the way his endgame is burning shireen and if he and if he <laughs> if he survives that he will he will presumably be a broken man until the the, the moment he dies probably shortly afterwards <laughs> so yeah I, I, they don't act as, as perfect summaries of complex characters but they they might reflect they might be like george just like flicking past the curtain saying hey here's where i'm going with here's where I, here's where i went with robert ultimately here's where i'm going with stannis and renly in case you're curious Agreed
0: there, so I think that about wraps us up for the main portion of this episode of the NotCast podcast. As always, thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Thank you for Matt for joining us. And, and Matt, where can we find your shit on the internet, bro? What in the internet? Yeah, where is it?
2: Where on the internet? Uh, so I have a YouTube channel, uh, YouTube.com/slash Joe Magician. Um, I did a lot of stuff for Game of Thrones, the se- season eight as it came up. I'm getting back into more song of ice and fire things my next my upcoming video is kind of like a simple question but i found it has a lot more to it it's like with the defeat of the others and the dragons leaving westeros substantially does this mean the seasons are going back to normal and it kind of gets to why are they out of whack what has george said about it and were either of those forces really in control of what was happening and i it's gotten me to an interesting magical meta place which i always enjoy getting to um and there will be some other things. Uh, there's going to be the murder mystery on Dragonstone. The the what's his name? The um the guy that poisoned everybody in uh, Fire and Blood. Um Andrew F- Farman. Farman. Uh, Farman, yeah. like who was behind that? Who gave him the poison? That kind of stuff. And also, uh, how to take seat. Uh, how to take Storm's End. Uh, Jeff has his own ideas about how Storm's End will be taken by Fagon. I have a different Excellent. one. Which actually, Jeff likes. He's heard it before you can also find me these are all also available as podcasts you can find them on itunes google play spotify as the wit and wisdom of joe magician because i am so original <laughs> that's what i chose as the podcast name i needed something um you can also find me on patreon uh, patreon.com slash joe magician where i have um i would say similar perks to kind of what not a cast and uh history of westeros do I have my own slack you get like stuff early you get bonuses et cetera. Et cetera. so if you like this kind of stuff i do talk about and targaryen's prophecy magical that's kind of my whole jam well not all of it but a lot of it a lot about john and also you can find me on watchers on the wall where i contribute um as a feature writer so kind of whatever whatever i kind of feel mm-hmm. like that i don't want to put on my youtube channel kind of ends up there and uh maester monthly podcast with um glass table girl and uh bookshelf stud most of the time but you can catch most of the moderators there at least the ones that want to sometimes even jeff shows up he's a moderator of a song of ice and fire you guys i bet you didn't even know that which we keep trying to demod him, it won't work it won't take oh it well i'll take <laughs> yep uh, so that's all the places i think you can find me at the moment Yep. that sounds like all of them
0: awesome man well again it was, it was a real pleasure to like have you on the episode itself i think I learned a lot of stuff today. I'm still kind of like, my hair is still kind of blown back by the whole idea of the, the Targaryen <laughs> family resembling the Stark family. I think that's really, really cool. Absolutely. So, thanks again for Matt for joining us. As always, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, anywhere and everywhere you find your podcasts. You can find our patron at patreon.com forward slash Nauticast
1: Follow us on Twitter at Nauticast ASOIAF or shoot us an email at NauticastASOIAF at gmail.com. You can find me at poor Quentin on Twitter.
0: And you can find me at Beefish on Twitter, Beefish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsficeandfire.wordpress.com.
1: We would like to give our shout-out, as always, to our high lords and ladies on Patreon. Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lord Quint Esquire, the Wolf in the West, Sir Sorce Adelica, Lady v- Veneris of the House Calgarian, the First of Her Name, the Overworked, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser, and the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portraitist of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Creator of Arts and Maker of Drawings, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Narrable, the Shula Sage, Lady Madeline Rivers, Justiciar of the Trident, and Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood. Thank you so much, as always, to our High Lords and Ladies for your support. We really appreciate it. Yes, indeed.
0: So, join us next week as we head down to River Run to reacquaint ourselves with the woman who only did one thing wrong in her entire life, Lady Catelyn Stark. And we will learn some troubling news about the startup Rob's reign. And we'll be joined next week by another then returning guest and champion, George R., I mean, Stephen Atwell. Stephen Atwell is coming back to join us for CatLib1, which is going to be a whole lot of fun. Cannot wait to have Stephen back with us.
1: For sure. Atwell, as Jeff was saying earlier, is definitely kind of, I think, the number one influence on our podcast, both in terms of structure and on content. We've had a great time having him on previously for an Ed chapter, for a Ned chapter, a Ed chapter, I wish, for a Ned chapter and a, a Catalan chapter at the end of Game of Thrones. And Catalan 1 is, is a great chapter full of questions of kingship and justice and peace and war, all those great themes that Atwell has, has written a lot about. And I love Catalan's chapters and Clash of Kings to Pieces, so yeah, can't wait for that.
0: Absolutely. So thank you guys for listening, and we we'll see you guys next time.